Welcome, everybody, to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is Professor of Religion Christopher Bache, who discusses his truly remarkable 40-year journey exploring LSD as a practice. 20 years, taking 73 high-dose journeys into the nature of mind and reality, and then some 20 years digesting and metabolizing what he discovered. The conversation ranges between the difference of spiritual awakening and cosmological exploration, the risk of high-altitude sickness, how valid is chemical mysticism? And how do you know what you're experiencing is actually true? Would others have the same experience if you did the same thing? We talk about the role of entheogen psychedelics as a form of tantra, where body, in this case chemistry, is as important as the mind. Can the heightening of the brain, the unconscious, what Trungpa Rinpoche talked about as super samsara, brought about by LSD, be used in an alchemical way to bring about awakening? What is the role of meditation in preparing and stabilizing this kind of journey? Chris also discovers a unique form Form of education or pedagogy where one actually becomes the object of study. How about the promise and peril of sharing these kinds of intimate stories and the even bigger risks of inviting others into doing this sort of journey? Join me for one of the most mind-bending, mind-expanding, and heart-opening conversations Edge of Mind has ever introduced. Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and I simply cannot contain my excitement about my guest for today, Dr. Christopher Bache. And, and so with uh, a brief introduction, we're going to launch into what I believe will be a quite a revelatory, and I hope provocative conversation. So Chris, PhD, is a professor emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown, Youngstown State University, where he taught for 33 years. He is also adjunct faculty at the California the Institute of Medical Studies, Emeritus Fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and on the advisory board of Groff Legacy Training. Chris's passion has been the study of the philosophical implications of non-ordinary states of consciousness, especially psychedelic states. An award-winning teacher and international speaker, Chris has written four books, Life Cycles, A Study of Reincarnation in Light of Contemporary Consciousness Research, Dark Night, Early Dawn, A Pioneering Work in Psychedelic Philosophy and Collective Consciousness, The Living Classroom, An Exploration of Collective Fields of Consciousness and Teaching, and LSD and the Mind of the Universe, the story of his 20-year journey with LSD. Chris is a father of three, a Vajrayana practitioner, and lives in Weaverville, North Carolina, with his wife, Christina Hardy. Oh my gosh, Chris, where do we start, right? First of all, thank <laughs> you, uh, my dear friend, for, for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Um, it's a pleasure. Really, I've been looking forward to this one for yeah. a while. And so... Oh my gosh, just some preparatory comments before we launch in. Um, I have read a fair amount um, over my years. I consider myself a bit of a an academic. I love to read. I love to devour books. I, and I have to say, I have never read anything like your last book, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And so out of all the books that you've written, this is the one I really want to focus on because it's no exaggeration to, to say that it really stretched my mind open, challenged me, and maybe we can talk about some of the areas where I was challenged, yeah. created both tremendous resonance with my own path and also some dissonance. And so yeah. that's a great way to make modern music, right? Yeah. So maybe maybe we can create yeah. a symphony of sanity with, with uh, some questions to you, yeah. um, of which there is no shortage. But one kind of preparatory comment um, 
there's a term by the eco-philosopher Timothy Morton that I really quite like. He, he talks about hyper-objects. And he refers to this in relationship to climate change when you have something that is just so enormous that it's really difficult to wrap your mind around it. It just defies description. It's literally mind-bending, mind-stretching, and then maybe even mind-blowing. And it's no exaggeration. Your book and your journey is a hyper-object to me. Um, uh, And I can't tell you how it's impacted me and how I want to really get into some of the nitty gritty of what you went through. But in order to give our listeners uh, even a a rough idea of what we're going to be talking about, perhaps give us uh, a a long elevator pitch. Okay. So this is a, we have a thousand floors to ascend, right? So this this is a long elevator pitch. Share with us, if you would, um, a little bit about this book um, before we get into the weeds and, and I start uh, exploring particular sure. topics with you. Yeah. Well, I know it's a radical book, and I think we are at a pivot point in history, and I think that psychedelics represent a major transition point, a, a true historical before and after point with respect to philosophy, not just psychology. It, it generates not only a new therapeutic protocol for healing the personal psyche, but literally a new way of doing philosophy. It's not really new because it goes back to the Ellicinian mysteries and the the ayahuasca traditions in Brazil. But I got involved in it right out of graduate school. Uh, I had just finished my PhD from Brown University. I went to work in Ohio at Youngstown State. I was looking around for where to begin, where to continue my research. I was a pretty deeply convinced agnostic at the time. Um, And I encountered Realms of the Human Unconscious, Stan Grau's first book. And that was a turning point in my life, quickly followed by his methodology book, LSD Psychotherapy. This was 1978 when I began graduate school. And I saw the significance of his work for philosophy, for my tradition, which was philosophy of, of religion. And I... I knew that I needed to do this work, that this would the people making the most substantive contributions to my discipline in the future would be people writing out of an experiential basis, not simply an intellectual basis. So I began to work privately. Um, uh, I split my life into two. On my day job, I was a traditional academic, you know, teaching courses, um, grading papers, going to meetings and all that. And in my private life, I began a 20-year journey working following Stan Groff's protocol. I ended up working with high doses of LSD for reasons I describe in the book. Uh, This is a very aggressive protocol. It's not a protocol that I would recommend today at the end of the journey, but I basically did 73 high-dose LSD sessions. Let me say that each session was completely isolated. I was separated from the world. I was in what I call the the psychedelic kiva, a very protected environment, separate from the world, lying down with the sitter. My sitter was a clinical psychologist who also happened to be my wife through all of my sessions, uh, wearing eye shades, and with headphones, listening to very carefully selected music to support the deepening of the process. So that's where I began. I worked for four years. 
I stopped for six years, again, for reasons that I give in the book, and then I resumed for another 10 years. And the method, the, the psychedelic method as a philosophical method involves systematically expanding the boundaries of one's consciousness. And, and let me say that we understand that psychedelics in general, and LSD in particular, is an amplifier of consciousness. It doesn't give you any specific experiences. It amplifies your consciousness, makes you hypersensitive for a number of hours at a time. How you use that hypersensitivity very much influences what emerges over a long period of time. If you go to a concert or you just sit down and chat with friends, you're going to have a certain level of experience. But if you approach these hours in a contemplative manner, if you approach them as an opportunity to go deep within your consciousness, totally internalized, isolating yourself from the world, a journey begins. It's a journey that has many levels because as we confront all the things that a hypersensitive mind throws up to us to confront, and it usually starts with all the fears, all the things we're ashamed of, all the things we're unhappy about, um, those are the early confrontations that lead to a, a, the healing process. But if you keep that up, it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper if you navigate this, uh, this journey carefully. I always recorded my sessions within 24 hours, and, and that's really important because the more careful you are in recording your session and pondering them, the clearer, the deeper your next session is likely to be. So there's a circle of learning that's involved. So for 20 years, I kept up this systematic practice. And then I waited, I stopped it. I went from 79 to 99. And then I didn't write LSD in the, in the universe. I didn't publish it until 20 years later in 2019. I spent many years analyzing my experiences, pondering them, trying to sort them out before I was ready to really um, publicly uh, release this hidden side of my life. My students never learned about my psychedelic work. I kept a firewall between my public life and my private life in this regard. And it's only after I retired from the university that I've really been willing to go public on this side of my life. Amazing. Even there, there's so much to talk about. Let me just, if I might ping one question for you, yeah. just briefly, I am a musician. My first degree is actually in classical piano. And so just briefly, why, why music? What was the role of music? And how did it help you? How did you choose it? I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, yeah. but, but I am interested. Uh, where, where did that inspiration come from and how did, how did it end up supporting your journey? There's early uh, research done on how music influences psychedelic sessions. Um, <clears throat> I have references to, that, to that, those sources in my work. Basically, it creates... Uh, a, a field, an, amb an ambiance that supports you letting go of your current physical reality, relaxing and yielding to this uprushing of material that comes from the unconscious. There are about five stages in a psychedelic session as the energy is building, as it's peaking, and as you're coming down, it's, it's hours, you know, it's eight hours of the day. 
And you have to choose music to support each stage of that process. So the music would be very aggressive and, and very um, long chordal sequences with powerful crescendos in the early stages, long expansive um, passages in the middle stages, gradually tapering off into quieter and quieter and gentler music at the end. After a after only a year or so, I basically stopped using classical music, which is more commonly used. Uh, I shifted to using uh, a lot of indigenous music because I found it to be more powerfully evocative. It helped me go into, let go of my conventional reality and enter into unusual reality. Well, that's really interesting, Chris, because it um, in the inner yogas uh, of, of Tantric Buddhism, which I know you're a student of the Vajrayana, mm -hmm. yeah, as you know, the, the subtle body is actually the kind of frequency or the, the um, mm -hmm. domain that is literally quite in resonance with sound. And so when we're actually touched by music, it's really our subtle body that is touched. And this is really interesting to me because yeah. when you talk about this journey, which in one way, and I'd be curious to see if this resonates with you, I, I, I really appreciated your frequent allusions to the work of Carl Jung. And um, I don't remember you saying this overtly, but the process of individuation, how it is that bringing the unconscious processes into the light of conscious awareness is what in fact constitutes one vector of awakening. And so the, the reason this is interesting to me is that the subtle body is, is also connected to the unconscious mind. And so in a certain way, um, and let me see if this is landing with you, when you're working with this type of music, it's almost as if you're creating a tuning fork, an invitational harmonic in external auditory mechanisms or mediums that therefore could perhaps evoke correlative inner qualities that help you in fact bring these processes into the light of consciousness. Is it fair to say something like that? I think that's fair. You know, basically uh, I think that's a good description. The subtle body is very actively involved in the psychedelic process. When you open up into deeper states of consciousness, I learned that deeper states of consciousness are higher levels of energy. And so it places enormous demands on your physical body, but particularly your subtle energy body. And so um, it's, it's very, the subtle energy body is very much involved. It's, it's a very, you're moving into highly stimulated states, which are not simply psychologically stimulating, but they're energetically, subtle energetically stimulating and physically stimulating. Yeah, that, that really makes so much sense to me. But I want to put an exclamation point in return to, something that you intimated that you also ping on later in your book um, <clears throat> connected to this kind of amplification using these agents as means to heighten awareness and amplifying the mind. And what you said at the end really struck me because in fact, I was a student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a statement that I always took from him to be pejorative, negative, that LSD is super samsara. I, I originally heard that as a negative. Mm -hmm. Your twist on it was fantastically alchemical or tantric because now you put a positive spin on it. Yeah. That in a very beautiful way, the super samsara gives you the opportunity to bring these unconscious processes into the light of awareness. And therefore, I think the word you use is, is confront, even confrontation. The word, you could say inner jihad, right? To wrestle with these inner dimensions as a way, uh, again, in, in the alchemical or tantric spirit, to transform these the super samsara into nirvana through proper yeah. relationship. Is that, is that 
one way to talk about what you experienced as well? It is. I want to. I want to tag two items there. The first one, uh, again, it all depends on how you meet this super samsara. Mm-hmm. Samsara is very addictive. It's very distracting. It's very alluring. And if you increase the the your sensitivity to samsara, it can take you on a journey that just will just distract you and lead you. And uh, it really doesn't take you anywhere except through into more samsara. But if you use this opportunity in a true contemplative fashion to look deeply at the samsara that's there, then you you find that you the samsara will fall apart. You will really take the samsaric tendencies to their roots. And when you take them to their roots, they become uprooted and you begin to move into deeper levels deeper levels of samsara, but then eventually into the levels that go beyond samsara into extra samsaric levels of reality, into the bardo, but then eventually into extra samsaric levels of reality. Now, I want to. the second point I want to mention is people use psychedelics for many different purposes, some for recreation, some to hyper-stimulate uh, creativity, but three basic purposes are Therapeutic healing, which is the dominant way that people are using psychedelics today in the psychedelic renaissance to heal the wounds of life, of the personal psyche. Second, for spiritual realization, to accelerate one's awakening, to accelerate the one's awareness of nirvana or entering into the condition of nirvana. And this is why I had started. This is what got me started, like many people in the late 70s, uh, into the psychedelic work. But eventually, and very quickly, really, that agenda fell away in my practice, partly because of the very powerful um, protocol that I adopted. Personal enlightenment fell away as not a significant part of my journey it came back around in the end, and it was always there, but it wasn't the primary modality. Collective awakening became very important. That is, working on behalf of the human family. The bodhisattva vow, in a sense, came through very strongly. But eventually, my work settled into a third agenda, which I would call cosmological exploration. The the what my work became was a long journey into what I think of as the consciousness of the universe or the consciousness of the creative intelligence that's behind the universe and within the universe. And you don't need to explore all those deep pathways in order to awaken spiritually. You don't need to go into archetypal reality. You don't need to go back to the birth of the universe in order to awaken to the truth of your essential nature, as the Buddhists would say, or to your Christ consciousness, as the Christians would say. And so I want to differentiate cosmological exploration from the project of spiritual awakening, because if we hold cosmological exploration to the measures or criteria of success of spiritual awakening, I think we're going to miss the mark of what's actually taking place in the journey. Oh my gosh, Chris, um, boy, you're going to the deep end of the pool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. So let, let's unpack this because I think th- this is really interesting. This is super important in my opinion, because it, it, it begs a number of questions. One is <clears throat> the relationship between 
<clears throat> excuse me, the individual and the collective, the individual and the cosmos. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, deep, as a scholar of religion and philosophy, deep questions about the nature of mind and reality that, um, I guess to paraphrase it, I mean, there's so many ways to get into this, but one, one question that comes to mind is, is it in fact the mind that's in the universe or the universe that's in the mind? In other words, what exactly is the relationship between the individual and the cosmic? And is in fact, part of what I hear is a, a dissonance, potential dissonance for me is a, is a subtle um, cosmological dualism that there therefore seems to intimate a difference between the individual and the cosmic, that there's still some sense of separation implied there. So yeah. let, maybe help me understand that, tease that yeah. apart for me, because if, if I, I noticed in one of your footnotes, you talk that if you were to pin yourself into a corner philosophically, you would, you would define yourself as a monist. And so how does yeah. monism play into this, if in fact you're intimating a subtle dualism? Uh, it's only a, du a functional dualism, which all monist traditions recognize. Uh, fun at core, I'm a monist at heart, and this comes. This is not a philosophical position. It's a. It's an experiential position. Mm. Um, <laughs> the deeper one goes into one's own consciousness, eventually come to that point where where. Let me wait, let me back up and start again. Contemporary thought, scientific thought tends to see the physical world as the only world that exists. And they tend to see the physical world as operating by mechanistic uh, processes, that there is not consciousness in atomic and chemical processes, and that consciousness somehow pops into existence at some point in the evolutionary uh, mm -hmm. process. Now, there are lots of philosophical reasons for challenging the adequacy of that understanding of consciousness. And I align with those philosophers who are panpsychists who believe that consciousness or the, what you might think of as ur-consciousness, a core origin consciousness, is present in physical reality or energetic reality from the very start. And that consci consciousness isn't added later, but consciousness is part of the emerging universe from the Big Bang forward. So that just mark that. Okay. Experientially, when one when one shatters one's personal mind, when when one reaches the limits where your personal history can no longer <clears throat> contain what's happening in your mind, and when you've excavated through the various levels of your personal unconscious, <clears throat> one drops into a larger field of consciousness. Part of that, one of the Part of the field you drop into is the field of your species mind. And here's the common ground with Carl Jung, the collective psyche. But if you keep working and dropping and dropping and dropping, you deep it, drop into deeper and deeper, larger and larger levels of consciousness until eventually you're in very familiar, very territory that's very familiar to the mystics when they are talking about God consciousness or talking about all is one. The experience over and over again is that the entire universe, both its physical manifestation and its the mind that underlies this manifestation is fundamentally a single organism. 
and that all life takes place within this single singularity and all life is a manifestation of an emergence of this singularity in diversity. Mm -hmm. And when we first began to discover this underlying reality, what I would call the mother universe that underlies the daughter universe of the physical world, during the axial age, you know, about three to 5,000 years ago, it was so what we encountered when we began to get have the, the meditation techniques or the psychedelic techniques in the early Hindu Soma to drop into this reality, it was so intoxicating and so ecstasy filled that we developed an interpretation of life that said that the purpose the purpose of life was to get back to that, that there is nothing worth holding on to in physical reality. There is nothing worth holding on to in individuality. What you really want to do is take the drop and put it back into the ocean. You want to dissolve ego and end up in back into the oneness. And I understand that, but I think it's a fundamentally uh, flawed cosmology. Now that we're beginning to understand how old the universe, how big it is, how intelligent it is, how, how long it's been working to bring forward the more evolved forms of life that it has, to think that after 13.7 billion years of evolution, when just a few thousand years ago, we've become self-conscious enough to be able to penetrate our individual consciousness and discover this underlying cosmic consciousness, which holds the entire universe. Just when we discover that, then we want to dissolve and disappear out of existence altogether. Go home. Makes no sense. I don't think that's it. And what I've learned or what I've been taught in my sessions is that the universe wants to support individuality not the prism, not not the individuality that's imprisoned within solitary egoic awareness, but a robust individuality of what we might call the soul, which is open and porous and in constant exchange with the larger rhythms of life. This is the both and position that Mm -hmm. when one awakens spiritually, one literally becomes more of an individual than you were before you awakened, you know? So there's a, so there is a, I think that when we go deep, we not only discover the oneness and we discover that that oneness is the essence of our individual being classic Atman is Brahman. The essence of the individual is the essence of the totality. But now we discover that Brahman delights in manifesting Atman and in growing Atman and in Atman waking up to its own true nature. And then that waking up is just a stage in a larger evolutionary process of empowerment so that we literally learn to become more and more and more of a conscious synthesis of individuality and spiritual totality. Oh, Chris, oh my gosh, uh, I can hardly contain myself here. What, I mean, talk about diamonds from heaven. I mean, this, this is your journey. You're, you're not Johnny Appleseed, you're, you're Johnny Diamond Seed. Your, your life is throwing diamonds. But, but uh, let me just, maybe this is an issue of semantics and, and the nuance of talking 
Yeah. Ooh, uh, what a challenge. When you start talking about um, non-duality, nature of mind and reality, using dualistic mechanisms, you're headed into trouble. So, but help me understand a couple of things. When, when you talk about um, the universe wants to support, and, and there are other intimations in your in your book that I found really compelling how it is that you felt from day one that there was a larger intelligence that was guiding your journey, yeah. that you felt held by the beloved. And, and now, remind me to come back to this because I want to share a personal story about my own retreat time yeah. where this, this came into real dissonance with me um, as, a, as a practicing Buddhist. Because as you know, in the Buddhist tradition, their biggest, one of their biggest um, teachings is on emptiness, uh, non-theism, and that sort of thing. And so I'm, I'm wrestling a little bit with reconciling things like non-theism and emptiness with what you're talking about. So mm-hmm. to be a little bit more articulate about this, let's be point a little bit more point blank from my end. How do you reconcile non-theism with this notion of a universal intelligence, which almost seems to intimate a, a creator principle, a God, if we dare say, because you, you almost seem to be implying that there is a divine transhuman intelligence, God, whatever term you want to um, yeah. append to it, that somehow is, in fact, your beloved. It is holding you, guiding you, nurturing you. How do you reconcile that with the teachings on emptiness and non-theism? Yeah. It's really not difficult when you, when you move into it. Um, so... Let's focus on the Buddhist teaching of anatta, no self, emptiness of self, shunyata, which can also be uh, translated transparency. I think I really endorse the Buddhist position of its radical agnosticism. I think it's an anti-theism. So basically, it's a critique that says every theism which is being proposed or has been proposed has structural flaws to it. That it, so, the concept of God, the concept of theism, uh, is critiqued as being uh, inadequate. And in its place, Buddhism proposes a pure process understanding of reality that everything is dynamic, everything is constantly changing, everything is fluid, everything is in process. There is no thing which holds its existence by itself. You only exist in the interplay of the whole ocean of of causality of karmic forces, cosmic down to species, down to individual. It's all an open system. And when when you wake up to your essential nature, you don't you don't wake up to a separate thing you wake up to a fluid process and you breathe now the fluid process of existence i i take that to heart and that resonates with my experience in that every i experience myself as constantly being guided and instructed and tutored in my psychedelic sessions but the nature of that consciousness that held me and broke me down and, and opened me and then broke me down some more, the nature of that consciousness never revealed itself as a being, as a person, as a personality. And the very structure of what it was that I was engaging kept expanding and changing. Now, in psychedelic states, 
you don't learn or you learn by becoming what it is that you're trying to learn about. You don't take the ego there and have an experience of something. You literally shatter and you dissolve and become this. So my experience was that when I began to become aware of this this other that was holding me and guiding me, and I began to ask it, who are you? What are you? I experienced a death which then dissolved me into a deeper level of reality where I discovered that I was, this was myself. It was a deeper level of quote, myself, not my personal self, capital M. And this repeated itself over and over and over for hours on this one particular session until eventually it brought me into the realization that it's an endless progression. It's, It's a seamless consciousness Within this vast consciousness, we are an individual consciousness confronting an infinite consciousness. How we experience ourselves at the moment of contact as we dissolve into it, influence what arises out of this infinite consciousness. And that's that awareness that this consciousness that I was engaging and discovered myself to be part of was truly infinite and open-ended, and that I reached a point 15 years into the journey where I discovered I would never reach the end of it. It Mm -hmm. it was an infinite progression, no matter how many years I did this work, there was always more to discover. So that means, and (laughs) that to me resonates very deeply with the Buddhist position on uh, it's critique of theism. It's pr- critique of gods that have physical forms or the critique of gods that are come out of human history and that are we can understand to be partial approximations, attempts to understand something which are partially adequate and radically inadequate at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, when you move beyond individual consciousness and move into the collective psyche and begin to engage some of the dynamics of the collective psyche, part of what you engage are all the stories that we've been telling ourselves for tens of thousands of years, all the values that have been involved in these stories, which have been reinforcing themselves on all these cultural traditions. And there comes a point where you die out of the collective psyche, just as earlier you had died out of your personal psyche. Mm -hmm. And when you die out of the collective psyche, you move into a states of awareness, which are trans species, which are go far beyond the entire human history. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you're moving into states of awareness that are radically, radically beyond and clearer than any states of consciousness that take place within the collective psyche. And you you realize that all the stories of our religions are part of the collective psyche story and that there are realities far, far, far beyond any of those realities. And I think that Buddhism is pointing to that phenomenon when it says it's, it's fundamentally agnostic. It says you shouldn't restrict yourself to any limiting belief about God. However, you can experience the reality that we're pointing to. You know, We yes. can experience this reality, but our understanding of it will always be partial and fragmented. 
Oh my goodness. So geez, every, every one of these little snippets we, <laughs> we could run off for a couple hours on this. Yeah. There are a couple of things here that really stood out for me, Chris. And again, there's, there's, these are really seed syllables for massive arenas of for conversation, but one is, is what you talk about so beautifully in your book. And, and I, I have not read living classroom yet, but I, I literally just got it in the mail. And that is this radical revolutionary new pedagogical approach, which you talk about, and I love it, this, this transition from kind of Newtonian atomistic pedagogy, individuality separate from others to a kind of a quantum entangled pedagogy where using that mixing metaphors, the connective tissue of consciousness that you're really you're learning by becoming. I mean, what a fantastic thing to say, which, by the way, has resonance in both the Hindu and Buddhist traditions through what my languaging is the Gnostic pedagogical approach of hearing, contemplating, meditating, which is ingest, digest, metabolize until the teachings actually are purified, filtered from conceptual defilements into full somatic embodiment. And there, that's where true knowing comes from. And so I love that aspect of your journey that, that it introduces a type of pedagogy that is completely resonant with the classic uh, wisdom traditions. You experience this through your journey. I also want to come back to, and this is key to me, and this was a really, really big um, experience for me when I did my three-year retreat, where I experienced what you're referring to for the first time in my life. And, and I wrestled with it, Chris, because it really, it, at that time, it was in dissonance with my under, obviously limited understanding of emptiness and not, non-theism, where I did feel um, I was being held and loved by something bigger than me. And this really um, created a rub for me because it was like, hey, wait a second. I, I thought there was no externality. I thought it was all... Yeah. Solips, you know, it's not solipsistic, but it's just mind only. So how how can there be an external agency without capitulating to the God principle? And and so what I want to share with you that again, your book was such an inspiration for me is that in a very real way, when I was doing these guru yogas and devotional practices properly, my mind broke. I I died to a limited self sense. I had, you know, we can come back to this in a little bit. There's just tremendous hardship and pain before that breakthrough occurred. And then the minute that happened, I felt this complete container mandala holding environment of love. And dare I say, and this is in quotations, an external agency that was in fact holding me. And then what became unbelievably interesting to me, Chris, was in a certain way, um, in the third year of my retreat, I lost something. I lost some of these initial qualities. And so at first it was like, well, wait a second. I, I, where, where did my magical nature of mind go? And, and I was, I really entered a kind of a dark night of the soul within my three-year retreat. And a Lama came in and said something that just floored me that um, it was a female Lama that said, the Dakinis can bestow awakening and they can take it away. And, and I said, What? What? You know, like that was like, uh, you know, it was like a big bong just hit my head. But yeah. it was so true. It felt like somehow it had been taken away. And, and it took me decades, Chris, to finally understand the really brutal, painful, powerful lesson that was developing in my retreat. And you mentioned this a little bit in the very last chapter of your book, which I thought was just absolutely genius, that I was getting stuck in a kind of almost spiritual bypassing or transcendentalism in the negative sense that I was 
dissolving into these completely formless realms where I became the universe. And, and I realized on one level, when this agency, for lack of a better term, took it away, the and, and this is my thought bubble, probably akin to some of the thought bubbles that entered you. It was like the command was, you will find me in form or you will not find me at all. In mm -hmm. other words, it was almost as if don't get stuck on this formless stuff. Don't get stuck in the transcendental aspect. Yeah. Come back to the earth. Come back to the imminent. Come back into body. And that turned out to be one of the most radically challenging and, and eventually over 20 years of trying to incorporate that revelatory experiences of the retreat was yeah. that, no, it's not about this ascent into this fundamental Godhead. That's just half the journey. The other half, the the involutionary half, is taking that and bringing it, riveting it, um, molding it back into the earth. And so um, I, I want to pause just to share that story with you, because when you share that in your book, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly resonant with what happened in my own experience. And so I want to return to, if you don't mind, help me further understand, and this will help many of my listeners who are Buddhists, who really work in the realm of non-theism and emptiness, this so-called agency, the beloved, that in fact can embrace, that we can call on, that we can work with, that, that we really are not alone. We can take refuge in these greater forces to help us uh, along our path. Yeah. So sorry for the long-winded interjection, but I wanted no, to share that because really it's appreciate. been very powerful in my own experience, not just a theoretical thing. This is a big deal in my own practice life. Yeah. You know, um, Maybe as a footnote to my earlier comment to bridge into this new wing, I think Sri Aurobindo's critique of Buddhism is correct in that he, he criticizes Buddhism for not sufficiently confronting the fact of existence, the, the extraordinary power and majesty of existence in, in rejecting anything static and anything in form in its agnosticism in its anti-theism and it's I'm not taught teaching all of that is well and good but he says we have to come to terms with the fact of the magnitude and the genius and the majesty of the universe of which we are a part now buddhism may say well, thank you very much. We don't need that. What we really need is freedom from our suffering. I'll take the freedom from suffering, and I'm not going to engage in the metaphysical, quote, speculation. And Arbindo's response is, uh, it's not an either or. Mm -hmm. And it's a certain kind of a capitulation to not confront some of the magnitude of the breath of life. And I think that now to move more towards what you were describing. When we have these breakthroughs, when we do the work and we go through the purification processes and, and we face our shortcomings and, and we let go and we let go and we immerse ourselves deeper and deeper. And then when we have these melting experiences where, as you say, we are embraced, we are held, by orders of, of, of genius and orders of love beyond anything we had ever experienced before. And one can go deeper into that. There, there's, there's, I've learned that there's so many levels of oneness and there's even levels of, of, 
of the void, of the fertile void, though that seems like a contradiction. There are levels of that, and you can go deeper and deeper into that. And it feels initially like an external or an other because it wasn't there before or we didn't experience it before, but we do now. And it's, it clearly is not inside of us. It feels outside of us because it's holding us. But the more, sorry, I'm having something peeping off back here. It's okay. It's all good. The more you go back and forth into that condition and back out again and into it and press it, of course, the more you realize that you're just waking up to your own nature. You're wake because your nature and this universal nature is the same nature. And that our essential nature is this vast expanse. This love that floods us from outside is actually a love which is welling up also from within side. The challenge is, is stabilizing those insights and, and bringing them into our daily experience. Now, I think this is, a, this is a challenge of all spiritual practice, of course. We go on these long retreats. We get into subtle, subtle territories. We come back to the honking horns, and it's just it's so difficult to hold on and to integrate day to day. And this is particularly the case, I think, in psychedelic practice, whether you're using psychedelics as a spiritual practice, or whether you're using psychedelics, as I did, as a measure of aiming at cosmological exploration. Because in my experience, in what I did, I think I pushed myself far, far deeper into the consciousness of the universe than I could ever, ever internalize and stabilize in this lifetime. Uh, and I came to realize during my time after the, I came off the mountain, after I stopped my work, when I was beginning to um, kind of just come off the mountain, come away from that long period of practice, uh, that I had, I had um, created an imbalance, an unwitting imbalance. I thought that because I had integrated each session thoroughly and carefully and conscientiously that I could step back from my sessions and I could take all these blessings with me. And I learned that uh, I had basically leaned so heavily into transcendence that I had sort of lost my foothold in imminence. Mm. And I knew from my experiences that the entire universe was the body of divine or the body of this infinite consciousness. I knew that I was never outside of divine reality inside physical reality, but I could not hold that awareness yet inside <laughs> physical reality. I know that there are beings who do, the great beings are always one's guides in these things. But I had, and it's kind of like you, I think, what what I I was kind of kicked off of the path, kicked off of the mountain by the sessions themselves. I did not know I was ending them. Uh, they were being ended, but there came, I had these last sessions, which basically let me know that it was time to end. And one of the things I learned in the process of ending is that I had to not expand my consciousness. I had to not 
alter my consciousness in any way, if the states of being that I had experienced in my sessions were ever going to come and awaken fully inside my historical existence. So I had to sit with the shell of my historical existence if I was ever going to fully integrate these vast bliss domains of ecstatic presence. And I think I, I think I did go farther than was good for me. And I, I have been in a completely different but equally important process since I stopped my sessions. The way the sessions put it or the way my meditation put it is there is the, uh, the dying of uh, discovering and then the dying of keeping. Mm. And I had done the dying of discovery, but now mm. I had to do the dying of keeping. And that's a different process. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, you're stopping my mind with every one of these. Uh, so mm. many things here, but a couple things. Whoa. Um, so much about this is mind bending. It, it's really yeah. mental yoga, yeah. stretching almost to the breaking point. And, and so a couple questions here is, and, and I, I wrestle with this. I mean, you're, you're the integrity of your being, Chris, your presence, the clarity of your writing, the elegance of your scholasticism, your academic predispositions and the like, I have to say, have been incredibly important for me to substantiate the veracity of your journey. Mm. And I see it with the nobility of simply the way you're presenting yourself. It's like, this is the real deal, but it is such a mind stretch. And so a couple of things along this beautiful challenge of stretching into the notion of, I love your, your nomenclature here, psychedelic practice. I've never heard that before. So talk to us a little bit about this revolutionary notion. You know, the skids have been greased by Michael Pollan, um, James Kingsland, Stan mm -hmm. Groff, these amazing predecessors, the shoulders upon which you now stand, where you can now... Um, silently but radically proclaim the validity of entheogens, psychedelics as path. So yeah. talk a little bit more about the practice of psychedelics, um, how to work this as, as a path. And then to come back to, before I forget, parenthetically, the, the importance of integration and the danger of disintegration. In other words, were you ever afraid of going insane? that you were stretched beyond your capacities to contain. And instead of stretching, you snap. So again, there's two big noodles thrown there. The first yeah, two is, big noodles. Yeah, yeah, the first, and I think in many ways, probably the most important is talk to us about psychedelics as practice and path. And then to come back, maybe a little bit about the process of integration versus disintegration, sanity versus insanity. Yeah. Well, you know, in different interviews that I've done, I make the point that I've never tripped. People say you've done 73 trips. And I say, no, I've never tripped. Uh, I've done sessions. These are therapeutically focused sessions. But actually, I, I'm in my own mind, I think of the Japanese term sashin. Mm. A sashin is a meditation retreat. It's a period of time set aside for spiritual, intense spiritual practice. So when I just talk about LSD sessions, I could be talking about LSD session. It is a period of time set aside for uh, therapeutic work, for spiritual work, for cosmological work, 
Uh, and there are certain, just as in a sashin, your daily life changes. You change your schedule, you change your eating, you change your sleeping patterns, you change your rhythm in order to focus and intensify this practice, just as you did when you did your three-year retreat. Everything changes around this long period of sustained introspection. The same is true in the psychedelic process. The, the critical, the underbelly of using psychedelics as part of a practice of transformation, an organized practice of, of transformation, the underbelly is that it's temporary. Hmm. You only have these states for a few hours at a time. And even if you use them diligently, you still only have them for a few hours of a time at a time, which is really the major reason why I stopped. It, it became too painful for me uh, to keep coming back from these states until eventually I made a deal uh, with my beloved, my name for this intelligence, whatever it is that it would not bring me back into these dimensions again until I could stay. It became, it was just too painful to come and go. Um, but before you get to that point, you can do a lot of cleaning. You can do a lot of healing and you would, you can do a lot of good for other people uh, in that. What happened in my work after about, two and a half years when I, I went through this, what Stan calls the perinatal process and all you go through this reliving with your birth, confronting all the fears of death, confronting the fundamental existential crisis of whether there is any meaning in existence, eventually going to a complete shattering of your individual egoic reality. I thought, oh, that's great. I've gone through an ego death. It was a shattering experience. Things are going to open up now. I'm going to go into clean sailing. <laughs> Not what happened. <laughs> what happened is that everything cranked up all over again. The suffering got worse, and it expanded for two years of practice into larger and larger levels, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, thousands and thousands of years. I had entered the hell realms, and, I, and at first I thought this is like a deeper level of ego death. But eventually I came to understand that, no, this was not about me at all. This was not about fundamentally my personal transformation or my personal awakening or even my personal healing. This was about trying to heal some aspect of the collective psyche, that there is an organizational structure, a consciousness that, that is our species consciousness. And all the wounds of history that are left unresolved are not only left unresolved at an individual soul level, but they are left unresolved at the species level. So all the wars we fought, all the terrible things we've done to each other, all the trauma, to the extent that that trauma is not healed, it, it resides as unfinished business within the collective psyche. And every spiritual practitioner who goes deeply enough in whatever methodology they're using is given often an invitation if they choose to exercise it to lift some of that suffering, not out of their personal life, but to lift some of that suffering out of the collective psyche. Mm -hmm. And for reasons that I think are soul choice, uh, that became a large part of my work. 
And I think there's nothing really special here. I mean, this is what any mother who sees a child suffering is going to do, if she can, do something to try to help that child suffering, to alleviate it. Any father worth his salt is going to try to help a suffering child. If we are given the opportunity, we're going to try to help other people who are in pain. This is just the normal workings of life. So to me, in fact, it became a mystery to me why the collective suffering stopped, why I wasn't allowed to stay in there anymore when clearly there's continuing collective suffering in the human psyche. Why was I taken into deeper levels beyond that? Levels which were very difficult, very challenging, but they were not involved with collective pain. Uh, I'm losing the the second part of your question that you would ask. I'd yeah, say. no, happy to, happy to throw it back up because yeah. there's again there's so much richness coming out. Mm. That's returning to to this notion of uh, we've circumambulated this, but haven't really directed uh, um, talked about it. Uh, the place of fear and oh, yeah. the role of integration versus disintegration. <clears throat> Did you ever yeah. actually fear? Um, especially coming back to the so-called real world for your yeah. sanity. I mean, did you ever feel you're going to become so unhinged? Because it, it, let me just say this very briefly, Chris, one of the things that was profoundly resonant with, with your work, and, and this is what just blew me away, this kind of, on one level, I've come to see psychedelics is, is a type of tantra. And by this, what I mean is, and this has been a radical change in, in my more conservative nature being more traditionalist and paying homage. Again, there's tremendous genius to the power of tradition, but there are also some near enemies, ossification, um, reifying even the tradition itself, losing tributaries of new information and growth. Yeah. And so I used to be really somewhat disdainful of, of these um, uh, kind of psychedelic approaches is yeah. chemical mysticism in the, in the pejorative sense, these kind of cheap fixes. But I've really yeah. changed my tune in that I, I now see them as a type of Tantra and by that, what I mean is that in Tantra, body is as important as mind. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about body, very subtle body. We're talking about chemical body. We're talking about body at the level of, of, of neurochemistry, basically. And yeah. so I think, again, within the context of psychedelics as practice and path, it actually can fit in an expanded rubric of Tantra, where body, in this case, chemistry, is as important as the mind that is evoked in this kind of neurophenomenological um, mm -hmm. way to use mm -hmm. the neuro end to bring about these phenomenal states. Yeah. And so with that in mind, yeah, the question was the role of yeah. fear, fear. Yeah. and integration versus disintegration and, and yeah. how that relates to your ability to contain this information. You, uh, I had, I did come into places to go through a death rebirth cycle is always an ordeal at one level or another. It always involves a surrender to the unknown. It always involves a yielding to a certain fear that's holding your system locked in place. And there were places where at advanced stages of the game that I truly did fear for my sanity, or at least I knew that I was going someplace that was completely beyond anything which I could hold on to, I could not hold on to sanity as I had known it. And it was like going over a waterfall and you just, 
But once you go through that, once you go over that waterfall and you experience that death and you experience waking up in a new reality as a new being, a new kind of being, not only a new and improved you, but a different kind of being where for hours at a time you can experience the universe as it experiences itself completely beyond any human frame of reference. Once you experience it, that is the nature of the cycle. And this is one of the, the great gifts that I got from Stan Groff was the absolute conviction that if you let these experiences take you wherever they want to take you, mm -hmm. even though you don't understand them, even though you don't understand why it's happening this way, and it's extremely painful, if you surrender completely, it will always take you through a crisis and it'll catch you on the other side and it will receive you and there, there is a blessing waiting for you on that other side. And for me, coming back from a session, it's never, I, I have no trauma from any of my psychedelic history. I can listen to the music I used and even the most horrifying aspects of the journey, and I love it. I'm completely comfortable with it. I can talk about any of the difficult portions without any resonating any trauma because when you take it all the way through, you complete the cycle. Things get bad, they get worse, they get worse, they get very, very bad. But if you let surrender, it'll take you through to a completion into ecstasy. And then what you bring back is this entire cycle. You bring back the knowledge that things get bad, but then things get great. And that's the rhythm of death and rebirth. That is the spiral of death and rebirth. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean, and I thought as long as that was going on, I was peaches that, you know, that I was holding everything in balance. What I did find, however, is that other thing we talked about, you can go so far into the ecstasy, you can go so deep into transcendence, that literally learning how to live with your memories becomes a major challenge. Mm. So as a spiritual practice, this practice is different from classical spiritual practices, which are much more emphasizing kind of holding on to everything, relatively speaking, holding on to where you go in smaller increments. Um, I have, an, I have an understanding of how the universe works, but I don't live within that reality on a 24-7 basis. Mm -hmm. The great beings live within that reality on a 24-7 basis. So being able to, I'm speaking out of my memory, and it's good to have memories of these realities. I, I mean, I really think they've changed my life. But it's one thing to be speaking out of memory. It's another thing to be speaking out of an immediate present right here living experience of this reality. Yeah. And learning, you can internalize so many profound memories that it literally becomes challenging to live with those memories. Mm. Uh, they haunt you for the rest of your life. And mm. they haunt you in a good way. They're not, they don't haunt you in any negative way. You literally are haunted by the beauty of mm. the universe, mm. right? And so you just 
you try to live it and embodiment as best as you can. Um, yeah. Do you think, do you think, Chris, one of the things that really struck me was what you just paraphrased. And, and I have to say, in, in this part of the book, I, I struggled with this part of, of this part of the book when you were talking about just all the pain, all the hardship, all the death, the death, the, the, the unbelievably wrenching section about the the, the dying children was. Mm-hmm. I was almost too much, and so yeah, I, I hung in there, and I'm glad I did in a certain way, uh, uh, almost metaphoric of you're hanging in there. But is it possible that that perhaps the what was being invited was developing a one taste relationship? to both the heaven and the hell, that there would in fact be no preference and no, because that's what they say, allegedly, at the very highest stages before the 11th boomy, the highest um, kind of membrane barrier before awakening is no preference whatsoever for samsara nor nirvana, discovering the inseparability. So do you think on one level that the agency was somehow eliciting the teaching lesson of great equanimity that in fact relate to the agony in the same way you relate to the ecstasy to realize that there's fundamentally no preference for either that 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 may have been what was being suggested there does that resonate with you i understand the teaching and that teaching does come up and reflect certain aspects of the journey I'm not sure that it reflects this particular aspect uh, in a in a satisfying way. I have a different way of understanding because okay. you're, you're talking here about the ocean of su- what I call the ocean yeah. of suffering, and um, you know one of the things I describe in the book is insights that came much later in the session that. I don't think everybody has to go into something like the ocean of suffering. I don't think everybody has to go into the hell realms or spend as long in the hell realms as I spent there. I mean, I don't think people need to be afraid of going through what I went through as kind of a necessary part of any kind of spiritual journey or cosmological exploration. I think that this was something that my chose my soul chose to do before I was born. Uh, it 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 manifested so quickly in my sessions after a couple of years, and it's it was such a tenacious and sustained part of my journey that I came to understand that this was literally a soul's choice. And and I I say this without pride at all because I think there are many 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 beings in the world today who have made the same choice. I think we are living in a critical time in history. We are living at a time when the sins of the fathers literally are just pouring out of us. And I, I don't, I quote the biblical passage, not to put this all on men, but that really the limitations of our up to now standard of evol- our evolutionary standard are just pouring out of us because we are being challenged to move into our next evolutionary step, not only as individuals, but as the species, uh, that the creative intelligence of the universe is trying to awaken not only individual spiritual practitioners, but the game is collective now. It's desperately trying to awaken the entire human species. And the, the hell realms that one 
are literally manifesting on earth as part of this collective detoxification process. And I think there are many beings who are, have taken the Bodhisattva vow into their life and are working to alleviate suffering collectively, socially, politically, and also psycho-spiritually. Because I think this century is different than earlier centuries, because there's a boiling taking place, there's a, there's, a, there's a churning which is taking place deep within. And so I assumed that I knew what I was getting into, and I volunteered for this work. And I know that this, it's a hard chapter to read, even though I cut it down to the minimal form, <laughs> it's difficult material. Uh, and yet I've had so many people write me and say, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've been, I've been going through these experiences for years or I went through them and I didn't understand them. You've helped me understand them some, but I think it's, it's not an unusual experience. Uh, once we understand that what's taking place here is a collective dynamic, it's something that we as an individual may have started, but the universe uses our individual initiative to accomplish something of its purpose, of its agenda. And its agenda is to heal the human species in order to clear out the dross that is holding us back to make more room for the infusion of grace, our energy, our awareness that is coming to carry humanity through this crisis that we are coming into, we literally cannot afford to be a planet that's run by egos anymore. Yeah, for sure. We're just killing the planet. We need to be a planet that's run by awakened souls. And by that, I mean beings who have a, a conscious awareness of their history so that they know that they are not simply egos, separate private cells, that they have a, an awakened soul consciousness where they know themselves to be spiritual beings in dynamic relationship with other spiritual beings, including non-human beings in this world, uh, you know, animal kingdom. And when we wake up in that way and we discover how old we are, and how many generations we've been doing this, and we discover the breadth of our human, of our relationships with other beings, then naturally we make different choices. Mm. Oh, that's really we make good. more inclusive choices. We make choices for the long term. We make choices on, that serves the good of all. And right now, I think we desperately need to be making choices that are inclusive and work for the good of all. Yeah, that's really beautiful. With your permission, and if you don't want to go here, that's fine. Um, I want to turn, again, I have to contain both my enthusiasm and the energy of like, oh my gosh, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about that. So I'm letting so much slide that it's fantastic. But with your kind permission, um, I want to turn to this issue of the the scientific and academic elephant in the room. How do we know if anything, any of this is actually true? Yeah. How do we know um, issues of, of, replicabil of replicability? I mean, how do we know if, if what you're seeing is idiosyncratic to your own biochemistry, that this, and again, in the best sense of the word, not pejorative, this is your trip. Yeah. 
And, and how, how do we know that if seven, if, if a, a thousand other people did exactly what you did, yeah. that they could even come close to replicating your insights, or would they in fact have their own particular biological, historical, phenomenological, whatever matrix whereby they would see and write um, a different journey, a different book through 20 yeah. years of exploration. So the, yeah. the issue here is the problem of proof and universality. What would happen if a thousand people did exactly what you did and they came up with a thousand different visions? I mean, how yeah. certain are you yeah. that what you're experiencing is actually true yeah. or simply your enculturation, your your own uh, unique biochemistry and all the histories that, that bring about the narrative that you're sharing with us? Yeah. So. Are you okay going in this direction? Absolutely. And that's a really important question. I mean, that's like a foundational question because if it if this is only echoes from my own personal psyche or even echoes from the collective psyche, then it has a certain kind of epistemic value, but it doesn't really have sufficient epistemic value that we that warrants our attention. And I I discussed this all the way back in uh, Dark Night, Early Dawn, in the first chapter where I'm outlining what it this psychedelic philosophy, and there's a section there called the epistemic warrant of psychedelic experience, where I, I flesh out this question and look at what the issues are involved in, this, in questioning whether these experiences truly do have epistemic value. So that's, I just point there. Also, Ken Ring and I have had a dialogue about this. Uh, Ken is good friend, wonderful researcher, near-death episode. I used his books for years in my classes. Uh, he challenged me on the same questions and we did a dialogue. Eventually we published it in, I'm blanking on where it is. It should, I should have this at the tip of my tongue. You can hang it's on, it to it's online. Yeah. yeah, it's online. Uh, it, it's quite, the essay is, Are Deep Psychedelic Experiences Trustable? Yeah. And uh, if it were just my experiences, that would be one thing. But here's, I think, the great value of Stan Groff's work where Stan Groff has collected psychedelic experiences from hundreds, if not thousands of people over decades, and he's integrated them into a certain model of what happens at different stages of the journey. My experiences fit squarely within the broader phenomenological uh, discussion of, of experiences that he has already outlined. And so I think that he provides, in a sense, a broad epistemic warrant for look, taking seriously my maybe a little unusually intense or maybe a little unusually deep, my experiences. But there's not too much new here when you look at the full breadth of experiences that he's reported in his many, many books, culminating in his great uh, masterwork, The Way of the Psychonaut. Uh, so there's a, a deep you know, overlap there. Another point I think, I'm thinking of Michael Sabum, mm -hmm. who was a cardiologist in the early uh, days of the near-death episode movement, and he was very upset that people were talking about coming back from a cardiac arrest and talking about spiritual realities. He didn't believe in any of that stuff, and he was going to systematically disprove it. 
And uh, he eventually wrote a book in which he came to the conclusion that this stuff is real. Mm. And he differentiate between what he calls the local event and the transcendent event. Mm. That when somebody has is in surgery or has a cardiac arrest, they get out of there. They have a sensation of getting out of their body, and they can experience what's going on in the local arena, the surgical theater, the waiting room down the hall, the hospital, what's going on in the parking lot outside. And then they go into the light and they, they leave physical reality and they go into a transcendental reality. He says, we can't evaluate the transcendent experience that they have, but we can evaluate the accuracy of their local experience. And that's what he tries to do, whether what they think they experience locally is in fact verified, verifiable in that world. And he, he provided evidence that in fact it was. Now that doesn't prove that the transcendent experience is true, but it certainly increases the credibility that if it's the local experience is true, the transcendent experiences gets a little bit more, a little boost of credibility. The same thing happens in psychedelic experiences. Many psychedelic experiences are such that they can be verified. Information about the conditions of birth or circumstances of birth, the things that people learn that they really, we can reasonably exclude the possibility that they had learned through natural means. And yet it turns out that these things can be validated. That plays here. The other part, though, is I think. Um, cross-validation, other people having similar experiences. Communal confirmation, exactly. Yeah. Now, what we find is this. When people start working with psychedelics, if you took 100 people from 100 different backgrounds, different sociocultural backgrounds, different trainings and whatnot, they would have very different experiences because psychedelics or LSD is an amplifier. It doesn't take you to a particular experience. It amplifies your mind. And because we have different histories, we bring, come in contact with different experiences. However, Stan reports that when people go through the perinatal death rebirth process, our experiences get very, very concentrated and very standardized. We begin to deal with issues which are not idiosyncratic, but are universal fundamental existential issues, and that when people navigate the death-rebirth experience, every person that he has experienced who goes through that process comes back with a, an understanding of spiritual reality, which is fundamentally compatible with each other, that there is a spiritual world that was waiting for us and receives us. From then, it's a matter of evaluating our individual explorations of that spiritual world. Now, what I did in uh, my first in my first book on psychedelics, near, uh, Dark Night, Early Dawn, I put together three areas of inquiry: psychedelic research, near-death episode research, and out-of-body research. Particularly, the work of Robert Monroe, founder of the Monroe Institute of Applied Science, author of three books exploring the out-of-body state. And I asked whether these cosmologies that emerge from these separate bodies of exploration, out-of-body research, near-death episode research, psychedelic research, are their cosmological visions diverging or are they converging? And once you look at them carefully, they are converging. They are clearly converging. So that's addressing the question, are, are these experiences trustworthy? 
Now, in my dialogue with Ken Ring, I present other reasons why I think they're trustworthy. And that is, for every time I had my own cultural expectations fulfilled, because I'm educated in world religions, I'm educated in comparative spirituality, I have an understanding of certain of these things. But for every time I've had them confirmed, I've also had more experiences that that shatter my expectations. I learned things I was not expecting. I, I learned an understanding of reincarnation, how reincarnation works and where it's taking us that I was not expecting at all. I wasn't expecting anything about the birth of the future human. There was nothing about my conditioning which led me to think that humanity was coming into this crossroads. There were so many things that I was shown so consistently that were far and beyond anything that I had personally expected that I think one can reasonably conclude that this is a confrontation with truly an, an independent reality. And I mean independent, I have to qualify that, but a reality that it was not simply echoing back to me my own expectations. And if you study the work of other people who push deeply into these conditions, into these states, I think we find a fundamental convergence, which doesn't mean we're seeing the exact same thing. But the issue is, do our, do our visions overlap? Mm -hmm. Are they coherent with each other? Do they overlap? Now, clearly, we're only at the very early stages of this inquiry. What's important is not any one person's experience. What's important is when we get, if we were to be able to get a standardized protocol, take 100 people, 1,000 people with some type of standardized protocol with very, very different backgrounds and put them through the same regimen of internal introspective work, then we get all of their testimony, all of their experiences, put them all on the table and begin to look at what is it that's consistent and what is idiosyncratic. That's where, yeah. where we're going. We just are not there yet. We're only at the very early stages. So I have no doubt that some of the things may be somewhat idiosyncratic to me, but I think that when we get to that point where we have hundreds of people putting their testimony forward, we're going to find much more consistency and overlap than we find divergence. Oh my goodness. So, so, so many things here as well. What a beautiful yeah. answer, Chris. It really, the difference between correspondence um, epistemology and coherence epistemology. I mean, the truth is born of coherence is the type of knowing that you're alluding to here. But this begs the question of um, aspirations around this. And, and so pardon the tongue-in-cheek reference here, but I was, I was this came to me out of who knows where. Where, you, you know, where do you see yourself in, in 20 years? Do you see yourself, and again, if you don't want to go here, fine, but... Um, how do you see yourself? Are you a shaman for our age? Um, do you see yourself, uh, and this is where the, the play on word comes in, not, not, not establishing a, 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 the church of LDS, but the church of LSD, right? So <laughs> do you see yourself, not the Latter-day Saints, yeah. but, you know, LSD. So do you see yourself, do you see yourself, um, and I think you understand the heart of my question, yeah. founding a church where, in fact, mm -hmm. You know, you you have a, a place where you can you now can create as a visionary, uh, as a revolutionary, a holding environment, a mandala container that can allow future psychonauts um, to actually embrace this as path. Because otherwise, 
where is this going to go? Are you just a unique and really interesting blip? Or is are you portending the possibility of really creating a tradition of psychonauts using rigorous, to whatever extent they can, methodologies, frameworks? Um, I think yeah. you, you see where I'm coming from here. Yeah. You know, what, what's next in terms of people? Yeah. Say somebody comes to you and says, Chris, I'm so blown away by your book. I want to take psychedelics as a practice. I want to create this as a path. What do I do? Where do I go? Yeah. Well, the first thing I tell that person always is, please don't do what I did. Uh, I do it gently, be gentler, be more careful. Uh, I think I'm a symptom of a cultural pivot that we're making. I don't think I'm important. And as we make this cultural pivot, I think I will just sort of disappear under the wave of history uh, as a somewhat early explorer but I think we are making a pivot that's going to include and is embracing uh, the value of psychedelics. Now, right now, you know, we basically did about 25 years of this work. And then in 1970, 69, 70, it was all made illegal. Uh, and then we went into this long dry period until 2014, when Scientific American published an editorial basically on the front page of the, saying that it's time to let scientists determine, not politicians determine whether psychedelics have a therapeutic value. So right now there's this tremendous renaissance taking place. Universities all over the world are studying psychedelics. They're establishing centers for studying psychedelics, a tremendous explosion. We're starting where we started <clears throat> back in the 1950s exploring these potentials for healing the personal psyche. We're looking at uh, post-traumatic stress, healing addiction, healing death anxiety, uh, healing depression. We're really focused on using these substances in therapeutic applications and under controlled scientific conditions. And, and this is, and that's perfectly where we ought to be. We need to now that we've started this inquiry again, we need to be very rigorous, establish the protocols, do the documentation, look at the brainwave pictures, so on and so forth. Sooner or later, however, we're going to discover the same thing we discovered far back. And I'm not talking about the, the popular 60s psychedelic movement, though that too, but the serious researchers, the Stan Groff and that early generations, Ralph Metzner, that generation of researchers discovered that these substances have philosophical value, not just psychotherapeutic value. They give us insights into the structure of the deep psyche. They can even give us insights into the structure of the cosmos, into the structure of the cosmology of the mind. And if we take PhDs who have people who have PhDs in physics and astronomer, they can literally come back with deeper insights into the realities that they are that they are educated to understand. I often have wished that I had PhDs in, in astronomy and physics, because then I would be able to understand so much more than I was able to understand given the background that I had in humanities. We're making this pivot. I think that just as psychotherapists are creating all sorts of creative protocols for exploiting the therapeutic potential of these substances, 
It's only going to be a matter of time before we develop philosophical protocols which for systematically exploring these states of consciousness, going into them in a rigorous manner, coming back, recording them, evaluating them, looking at our experiences in, the, in a social context or social validation or asking that question, embodying, putting our experiences in the context of other bodies of knowledge, looking at how these experiences correlate to quantum physics, for example, or correlate to superstring theory. I think this is this is not me. <laughs> I, I'm going to be gone 20 years. Hell, I won't be around in 20 years. I don't think I'll be around nearly that long. I'll be gone. And, and actually, and two, uh, I, I should say, it took me a long time to even be willing to share these experiences because I know how upsetting or controversial they are. I, I literally thought of writing the book and letting it be published posthumously. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because exactly. I didn't want to deal with the fallout of it. And I this certainly... That's what happened, this I what happened the, with Wolfgang Pauli and his conversations with Carl Jung, right? He didn't want any of that revealed until after he died. But anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut yeah, you off. Yeah, and I just, I thought, but, you know, the mother told me, she said, no, you can't do that. She said, uh, she said, this is... It, we need all oars in the water. Uh, she said, you didn't give yourself these visions. We gave you those visions and they were never given to you for your private edification. You were holding these visions in trust and that she wanted me to share them. Not because it's not important that they're my visions. Sure. She wanted me to share them because they would support other people in their spiritual practice, other people in their social work to, to help us through this very, very intense time of history that we're coming into, all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. And so I did the book, and I don't have any, I don't have any agenda. I think what's, what's clear is that there is a social pivot taking place. And that's what's important as we move forward collectively. The, the work which is being done at graduate programs and medical schools all over the country that's what's important. I think I'm a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of the philosophical discovery only because of the very, very intense methodology that I used, but I don't think I'm really that far ahead of the curve. Uh, There is a, a professor from Southern Methodist University called Bill Barnard, who's written two fantastic books, one on William James and one on Henri Bergson, a fine academic, Bill Barnard, And he's publishing a book from Columbia University Press this year called Liquid Light, Mm, which basically is a philosopher's reflections on his extended experiences with ayahuasca and living with the Santa Daime community in Brazil. Beautiful book, magnificent book, and symptomatic. One more academic who's willing to go public on their psychedelic experiences and not simply recording them and saying, oh, this is what's important, but evaluating them, critically digesting them and offering them as part of an ongoing historical discussion. So we're making this pivot, it's it's happening. And it's it's radically brave, Chris. I wanna acknowledge your bravery on this. And and again, this is a stretch for for me because I'm I'm being um, introduced over the last couple of years to how conservative I am in some levels. I always thought myself as this liberal, far out kind of guy. 
Yeah. But I realize in my own way, I, I have my, I wouldn't say blind spots, but natures of, of being conservative that that really now being challenged, stretched, open and going, wow, this is fantastic. And one of these is the the just the the generous courage of writing a book like this, because it, you know this from the traditional admonitions, he who knows does not speak, he who speaks does not know. And so here you are, you're speaking all over the place. And I, I used to really um, question that and then you know, the the beautiful book by Minji Rinpoche, if you haven't read it, In Love with the World, Amongst Journey Through the Bardo's yeah. Life and Death. Yeah. It's an amazing journey of his intimate sharing that is profoundly inspiring. Your mm-hmm. book, in a certain sense, violates the code of secrecy. But I think we're living in, in unusual times that require unusual slash extreme measures. And so I, for one, really applaud your courage that you are you are stretching the boundaries in so many levels in terms of pedagogy, radical innovations and path, and also courage and sharing. And so I, I, you were about to say something. I want to return to what you're about to say. But I, I, I really deeply thank you for that because, you know, the tradition, Tuku Ujin Rinpoche said, sharing experiences inappropriately, and that's the key, is like being in a dark cave with a candle and giving your candle away. You're left in the dark. Op- opportunity is transformed into obstacle. And so I, I this is both an applause for what you're doing and perhaps uh, a commentary elicited from you in terms of inviting more and more of this sharing so that people can realize there is a chorus of sanity coming out yeah. in radical innovative ways of learning. Yeah. So, yeah, I had to really face resistance around that too, because in Buddhism, Traditionally, you don't talk about your experiences. You know, you really don't talk. No. It, it can become an encumbrance on you to talk about your experiences. Absolutely. And, um, but, you know, I'm a teacher. I love to teach. I was designed to teach. I'm a yakker. I, 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 I love to yeah, learn. Yeah, yeah. That's right. that's, you know, I just, that's what I love to do. And as I said at the, in that coming off the mountain chapter, it wasn't simply the imbalance of towards transcendence, which made me sick coming off the mountain. It was the silence that I had to live with. Because as a philosopher of religion, I had had the most powerful philosophical experiences of my life, and I wasn't allowed to talk about them. Mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed to share with them. I wasn't allowed to do my job, yeah. which and to do my job as an academic because of our phobia, our laws around psychedelics. And that holding that information literally makes you sick inside. You know, I wasn't allowed to be who I truly am. And writing the book was part of my own self-healing. And beginning to speak about it is part of my own self-healing. And at the same time, having said that, I have no agenda whatsoever. I... I'm not, I have no, I'm not trying to persuade anybody. I, I don't have an ax to grind. I've got nothing to sell. I'm, I'm an old man. You know, I'm 72 years old. The end of the diving board is getting close. Thank goodness. Uh, this being that I am is so ephemeral, is so short lived. <laughs> I, have, I have no attachment to it and certainly no attachment of using it as a model of anything, yeah. but I love to teach and I hope that the experiences will be useful to other people, even if they never take any psychedelics whatsoever. 
I hope that the vision of the universe and the, the vision of the intelligence of the universe will resonate deeply with people's inner experiences and their cognitive experiences as science becomes more aggressive in pushing its own boundaries. Yeah. But I hope it will speak to people whether or not they ever take any psychedelics. Uh, because I think we are at a pivot point. We are just, we're coming out of this terrible period of, of history where we've believed that there's no intelligence to the universe, that it's all an accident, that it's all a mechanistic rule of the genetic dice, and there's no real intelligence to the existential circumstances that we confront. And I think this is being exploded and we're waking up and suddenly we're, it's like a veil is being lifted. We're waking up to a world in which reincarnation is a fundamental fact of life. It's a fact of nature. We're waking up to, uh, to truly an emergent intelligence in the universe, which everywhere we look, whether it's in the solar system, in galaxies, in the genetic code, everywhere we look, we are seeing orders and orders and orders of intelligence. And this is simply accelerating that immersion into that intelligence. Mm. Uh, and that opens up a whole new, I think this is a pivot point that we're coming into. And, you know, it couldn't happen a minute too soon because we are about to go extinct mm. if we don't change. It's It really reminds me, uh, Chris, of what the, the ecologists uh, scientists talk about is punctuated equilibrium. You yes. know, the thing simmer, 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 and then they sudden flip. Yeah. And so in a certain way, it's like what you said so beautifully in the book, that gestation takes a long time, birth happens quickly. And so when I look at the 50,000-foot view, what I'm seeing here is exactly what you're intimating, that that correlative, like the Taoists say, correlative with the dark is the emergence of light, and in direct proportion to the insanity are voices of sanity coming in. And so if we can relate, it's like they say in Tantra, hell is paradise, that, that the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. And voices like yours and others that are actually coming up in, in this ocean of tremendous dark age, talk about the Kali Yuga, yeah. really lend credibility to this co-emergent principle that if we simply look properly, voices like yours and, and others, we're, you're just part of a chorus of sanity coming up. Just a chorus. And if we see that, then we then we can. It's all about right view, isn't it? Like the Buddha say that if we simply have the right view, that the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. Then what you're talking about is adding to that kind of view. And and so I, I don't want to draw too much of your time, my friend. I could talk to you for the rest of this day, but <laughs> with your permission, there's just a few more things that oh my gosh, I have sure. to ask you. Sure. One is, and this is a little bit. I mean, it's philosophical, but it's interesting for most people. And I think this is for you as well. When, when, when we say, oh, that's just theoretical, that's philosophical. Well, it may be so simply because it's not your experience yet. But when it becomes your experience, it's no longer theory. It's no longer philosophy. It's your reality. And so one of the things that you talk about that, that again, challenges both Hindu and Buddhist approaches to teleology Purpose. On one level, as you know, the Tibetans talk about lila. The world is just play. Um, the Tibetans talk about rolpa, just this divine play and dance, um, without directionality, without purpose. And so is it simply a matter of stepping out of binary modes of thinking that is either that or the other and switching to more 
what do they call it, dialetheism, this, this, the ability to, to hold um, different views concurrently. I think Jung talked about this as well. So talk to us a little bit about yeah. um, the emerging human, which implies purpose, teleology, ends, um, the omega point. I mean, th- does that fit into your both your experience and your understanding of what you went through? You know, I, I think when uh, some of the great masters talk about life is Leela, life is play, creation is Leela, it's a dance. Uh, I don't think they're saying, of course, in any frivolous way, but I think what they're saying is um, not necessarily that life doesn't have an intelligence that is expressing itself in purposeful activity, but they're saying that life isn't generated out of compulsion. Life is not generated out of necessity, that life comes out of the fullness of being. It comes out of the excess of being. It doesn't come out of a deficit of being, uh, and that there's an exuberant quality to life. And we express this exuberant quality in this metaphor of a dance, because dance is not compelled. We dance out of joy. We dance out of an excess. We don't dance out of necessity. I think the, I I think when I, you know, the theme of the future human and the emergence of the future human was a completely unexpected uh, theme in my work. And it was one of the most consistent themes of the work and it became the context within which everything else took place. And it eventually became the context in which I understood my entire incarnation to be taking place. It started in the 23rd session. And it, the last time I encountered it was in the 70th session. It was a consistent thing. And it is. And here, I would just suspend any theistic notions of mechanistic intention or purposeful intent or manipulative intent. I, I don't think in those categories, uh, I, I would hold on to an emergent understanding of a cosmology that there is an innate quality, which is emerging. We go through these punctuated equilibriums, these, these crisis points, and that there is a, a genius at work in this, which I don't begin to understand the, you know, how this works. What I will report is that in my sessions, when I dissolved into this larger intelligence, which existentially I was part of, but cosmologically was much larger than anything I could relate to personally, it was, it told me a story over and over again, and it laid it out systematically, layer by layer, without contradiction over years, that humanity was coming to a turning point. Humanity was approaching a critical time in its evolutionary journey, a true before and after time, that there, that the, the, the karma of, of millennia was kind of rushing into this valley. It's like multiple rivers pouring into a canyon. There's nowhere for us to go except up. This was a critical time, and that, and it is a time in some way foreseen by the great seers of history, by the great saints, by the great spiritual geniuses 
of, of history, the, the great incarnations, the great prophets, uh, the great awakened ones, that they, that they have seen this kind of coming forward. It's a vision which is shared by indigenous peoples that we are coming into this time. Uh, and then 55 sessions, 15 years or so into the work, now I have to back a bit, time became very porous to me in my work. I mean, I was taken beyond linear time multiple times in many different modalities into what I call deep time. Deep time is not eternity. It's not, it's not timelessness. It's experiencing different spans of time from within a different frame of reference. And I was taken into deep time and I was taken into it, not as Chris Beige, because Chris Bache had been dissolved long before. And I had been dissolved into the human unconscious, into the human species mind. And I don't know whether it was because of the work that I had given in the ocean of suffering, whatever it was, I was taken into the future and experienced what I saw, what I experienced as the death and rebirth of humanity as the human species, a, a cataclysmic period of history in which humanity was literally just broken down. We lost control. We were, we were put through a crushing historical process where all the, all the assumptions of the past broke down. We were literally brought to our knees. We were reduced in the end to the challenge of mere survival. It just, we were stripped down. It was a terribly excruciating experience. But when it was at its worst, when it was at its peak, it was like a hurricane that passes over a Pacific Island. Suddenly I began to experience that things were beginning to get better. Things were beginning, we, there were many, many people that died, but many survived. And the storm began to pass. We began to pick ourselves up. We began to reconnect. And as we did, when we did, we discovered that we had been changed. This crisis had changed us at our core. We began to enact a, a living intelligence, an aliveness that we had discovered in the worst of this crisis. It was like this crisis opened up our hearts and made us a more compassionate species. And it opened up our mind, making us a more intelligent species, able to integrate and access information from the intelligence of the universe itself. As we began to reconnect with each other, we began, there was a snowballing effect. So that just as there had been a breaking down and a breaking down and a breaking down, there was an acceleration of creativity, an acceleration of the actualization of values that we had discovered in the worst of this crisis, where everything felt new, everything, there was a new set of values, a new set of ideas, a new political reality emerged, a new social reality emerged. Later, I was given more instructions on the some of the mechanisms that are involved uh, and instructions and teachings on that this is a shift which is taking place at the center of the collective psyche. 
without going into too many layers of the discussion now, this is not simply a shift in the political arena or the social arena or economic arena. It is a shift in the core substructure of the human psyche, a shift in the architecture of the collective psyche. And we've been, just as we collect all our experiences over many incarnations at the soul level, the human species has been collecting and integrating its experiences at the collective level, at the unconscious collective psyche level. And what's happening now is that we are pivoted, we're poised to make a pivot in the collective psyche. And that after we make this pivot, all human beings born will be operating within the context of a literally of a different collective psyche. And I think we see the prototype of this psyche in Christ, in Buddha, in Muhammad, in these awakened beings who we have been trying to emulate for generations and generations, beings with expanded hearts, with expanded compassion, with expanded deeper insights into the universe. They speak differently. They don't work the way ordinary people work. They, they are different kinds of being. And I think we are becoming a different kind of being. At least that's the consistent message that comes through my work over and over again. It, it's literally breathtaking, um, Chris. A few, I, with your kind permission, I have to bring you back at some point. Yeah. Because we haven't, I wouldn't say we haven't gotten to the goodies. Oh my gosh, it's been so rich. But <laughs> your chapter on the diamond luminosity blew my socks off. Your chapter on coming from down from the mountain was brought me to tears. I have to bring you back to talk about that because I don't want to dilute the impact of what you're saying by trying to do a shotgun of, I mean, how do you distill 20 years of unbelievable insight to even two hours of conversation? And so yeah. to whatever extent I have been able to, I wanted to concentrate on a couple heart essence points, add a little water to them so we could understand them without capitulating to my near frenetic predisposition to like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to him about this, right? <laughs> we'd be, we'd be going you're doing this. a great job. You're hitting really important <laughs> topics. We'd be going at this mock one, but I wanted, I, there's a couple of things um, before we close for today mm-hmm. that, that I want to return to that, that I think are somewhat important, at least they are to me. Um, and two things here. One is your journey seems to imply or a, a, a type of um, attainment. In other words, you, we, you're alluding to extraordinary states, and, and, and I'm not contesting that at all. But I'm wondering if, if the languaging, the branding, so some of the things that, that, that occur to me using somewhat marketing um, methods is one thing that needs to happen is this whole thing needs to be rebranded. This whole LSD thing, the branding thing is, is really so contaminated with histories that we need to rebrand it as entheogenic practice or whatever. But the other thing that needs perhaps to be rebranded, and this is just me, I'm curious how this lands with you, is there seems to be this intimation that you have a left conventional reality at one level you have and attain these states that are extraordinary. But is, is it in fact, Chris, just as viable, if not more so to say that this is the extraordinary state. In other words, this is the non-ordinary state, samsara. And that what you're actually doing in your journey is, is, and this is a narrative that keeps coming over and over. I loved it. The narrative of opening, receiving, surrendering, and, and maybe for next time, not only opening the, uh, the mind, but just as much again in tantric languaging, 
the unbelievable importance of opening the body. And so as, as a consequence of opening, yeah. and you mentioned this so many times, I was curious how, how often you said this, dropping, you open, you drop. So it's yeah. not a, a journey of ascent so much as it is a waking down into really what are ordinary states that, that when you relax properly and have the capacity to be so open, what you're talking about is completely ordinary, that you're not really going anywhere. You're simply relaxing deeply into the right here and now. And so the reason I say this, Chris, is because one thing that, that I think could be a little bit intimidating for people is, oh my gosh, I can never do that. I could never attain that. That's so far removed. I think if, if you look at it in this different way, and I'm curious if this lands with you, it empowers the immediacy of what you're talking about. That, that fundamentally, this is the nature of the mind. This is the nature of the human and even transhuman condition. And so talk to us a little bit about the, 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 the almost the false, no, the false notion of path, because even the notion of path needs to be rebranded here, because that implies you need to go somewhere else. And in the very striving, you actually ironically leave what you're trying to attain. Yeah. So the whole notion of like you attain enlightenment, that's actually an oxymoron. You cannot attain enlightenment. They're mutually yeah. exclusive terms. Yeah. So a lot of noodles against the wall, but I think important ones because it also ties into the last thing I wanted to say here is you, you also use the phrase a number of times of coming and going. In other words, you entered the state, you left it, you entered it, you left it. That also means a return to some kind of source. So I'm wondering about the relationship here again. I, I know I'm tossing a lot out. Yeah. The relationship between source and essence and the relationship of all this to recognition that is in fact recognition, not the central message here. That if you simply open your mind and heart, irrespective of the means, meditative, pharmacological or whatever, if you simply open and recognize everything that seems to be intimated here is, oh, geez, I need to do this 20 year journey to attain this provisionally, maybe yes, but absolutely no, it's right here, right now. You just need to open your eyes, divine eyes, and it's been here all along. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, in fact, well, let me back up and- There's a lot there, I'm sorry. Story. Yeah. In the early stages of the journey, there is a subjective sense as one moves into psychic level reality and subtle level reality, there is a subjective sense of opening becoming larger, opening and becoming larger. And that's why I think psychedelics were named mind opening. It is a sensation of opening the mind. Late in the journey, later at a more advanced stage, when I was working at what Stan would call causal level reality. Yeah, we can as well. Yeah. Everything reversed. I had the experience that uh, my mind, everything was converging. Uh, I was in very, very large states of consciousness, very, very high energy. But instead of going deeper into those states, all everything was converging back to right here, right now. My, my sessions were getting harder to describe because they, they were so taking place inside ordinary reality. Mm. I wasn't being taken outside. Everything was converging. And I began to think, oh, my God, have we really misclassified what these substances are? Absolutely. They're not mind openers. They're yep. mind concentrators. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And I think what happens is at different levels of reality, the subjective experience changes 
from opening to a concentration. Or it may be the case that the consciousness orchestrating my experience was bringing me back into what would more be recognized as a more classical kind of spiritual awakening. But the core is that it's really simply the case. A sashim is you turn your mind and you focused on the present. You, you eliminate the outside and you go right here, right now. And when you do that, this purification process happens, of course. But where you end up at the end is simply where you were in the beginning, but with fewer distortions. Yes, Elliot. Yeah. yeah. And you're just cleaning, you're cleaning the macchio, you're cleaning the distortions, but there's no place to go. There's no place else to go to except where you already are. And there's nothing to become except what you already are and always have been. You don't, you know, that reality, which doesn't begin, it doesn't end. There's no turning on. There's no turning off. There is only the relaxing into what has always been right here, right now. And I think that's, that is true on, at least it was true in my experience in the psychedelic path. I don't think anything that I'm describing is original. I think everything that I've described in the book can be found in the spiritual literature of the mystical traditions, the contemplative traditions. The cosmology that emerges in psychedelic research is not a new cosmology. It's an old cosmology. It's it's only new in the context of its emergence. And it leaves you, I say, you know, in somewhere in the end stages of the book, I the only thing which is of value to me in the psychedelic work is purification, purification, and, and just purification. And it, cause it brings us into a more intimate experience of what already is. And by some silly nonsense, we keep ourselves out of the joy of this deep and profound reality that is living in us, that is us, that is expressing itself. So I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. It's it's just purifying, that's all. And again, not that this brings validity to what you're saying, other than the validity to my world is yeah. we come and learn and understand things in terms of other things yeah. and a logical knowing. And so what brought such deep, deep resonance was, wow, here's an amazing individual who's taken a, an entirely new path that is so resonant with my path. And, and again, completely aware of the hubris of saying my path betokens the yeah. truth and therefore yours is true because it relates to mine right, right? No, yeah. like, the subtle, the subtle self-aggrandizement there is actually not so subtle right yeah. i think your stuff is true because it resonates with my trip yeah. totally aware of that yeah but with that said um there's so many resonances the, the the notion of purification as you know you're and this is what the question i wanted to ask you um how, as we start to close up for today, one of the, the chapters or sections that really spoke to me, of course, um, somewhat 
um, preview by what I just said was your uh, interjection of the path of Vajrayana that, mm-hmm. and, and how that is now perhaps cre- uh, creating, a, again, a holding environment to support, augment, transition in more, and this I, I, you understand, hopefully, yeah. the question, in, in more organic means, more phenomenological versus neurological means, tr- so-called traditional methods. Um, yeah. And so as we start to wrap up for today, because I want to give people something to take home, like how can they use this, work with this? And I have one follow-up there, but what has been the role and continues to be the role of both meditation and the Vajrayana to augment, support, enhance, stabilize what you've gone through? Well, one of the gifts that came out of my psychedelic experiences was a deepened appreciation of the power and effectiveness of classic spiritual contemplative practices uh, and including the Vajrayana practices. Uh, By becoming sort of temporarily more aware, I was able to appreciate more deeply how these practices were affecting my body and how they were affecting my mind. Um, Even though, and they also helped me manage some of the challenges that I was running into. Because remember, I wasn't doing this work, or I didn't end up doing this work for the purpose of spiritual awakening, though that was always there in the background but I was doing it to explore the universe as a philosopher, hungry to explore the nature of reality. Mm. But the Vajrayana practices helped me manage the excess of energy that was having, uh, was Mm. being flowing through my body Mm. uh, by giving it an intermediate place to live and breathe. That was like in between my physical existence and my psychedelic existence, there was this Vajrayana practice space. That, of course, taught me that these these practices are much more powerful than I had appreciated or I might have appreciated just from working with them from my ordinary time-space consciousness. I also came to appreciate that these practices are empowered by the morphic fields which have been generated by thousands and thousands of beings doing these practices for hundreds and hundreds of years. The power of transmission, the lung, when a practice is given, it's not just to maintain the formal purity of the practice, but there truly is an energetic transmission. And the power of this practice draws upon the cumulative power that is set in motion by thousands of beings using these practices over many, many years. Now, I don't know whether to describe myself as a Vajrayana practitioner today, um, because while I do practice and I do meditate, uh, the focus of my practice is different. And in some ways, the focus of my practice is actually speaking. Mm. There is a way in which... When I speak about these things, I remember them. When I remember them, they become actualized within me. When they become actualized within me, my mind shifts, my body shifts, everything shifts inside of me. 
and so actually for me, this wonderful discussion that we've been having, and I really, really appreciate the, the, the deep engaged quality of the questions you've been asking me and where you've been taking us. For me, this is like a spiritual practice for me. Your, your questions give me the opportunity to open in ways that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be open in today otherwise. Mm. In that context, uh, as part of my ongoing effort to simply to be useful to the universe, I practice, I do my practices, but I don't practice with the intention of trying to accomplish something. Beautiful. And I don't practice with the intention of changing what's going to happen to me when I die. Now, it, it may be arrogant to say this, but I just report that I have a sense of what's going to open to me when I die because I've been there. I've yeah. been there yep. different ways. Been there, done that. Right? Yeah. And, I, and I, the universe is has made promises to me. And I don't think the promises are false. I think they're just very matter of fact. And so I don't practice in order to change what's going to happen to me when I die. I practice to change how I am right now and to try to be of more use to people right now. So to kind of, to clear my system, to clear my system, uh, to remember. Yeah. And I use my psychedelic memories in my Vajrayana practice. You know, in Vajrayana, you, there's the Samaya Sattva and the Janana Sattva, the, the being of practice, which attracts the being of reality. And so we do these visualizations and exercises and mudras in order to create something which is an approximation of an eternal principle by virtue of which we draw that principle into our being. Well, I use my memories as Samaya Sattva mm. in the creation of Samaya Sattva mm. uh, in order to open the channels to the Janana Sattva of these principles in reality, you know, and that to me is just this is a this is a natural process. So it, I do the Vajrayana practices, but I do them with my own particular kind of twist. And understandably, it's hard to find a teacher who is comfortable with somebody who owns a psychedelic history the way yeah. I own mine. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe that needs to um, change and adapt. I mean, and who are we to say that? Talk about the, the arrogance of that. Because as you know, Chris, and I'm so glad to hear you say this, there actually have been in the wisdom traditions admonitions, a warning against originality. That, that's very interesting to me, that, that, that originality is somewhat suspicious. And I, I find that a very interesting statement. On one level, yes, it, 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 it abides by the elegance, the beauty of the tradition, and on one level, the sort of irreducibility, irreducibility of the awakened mind that's already been discovered. And I think if it's related to properly, that can prevent rogue um, messiahs and the like. But on another level, if we don't evolve, we're going to go extinct. If we don't bring, we meaning the wisdom traditions as a representative of, if we don't bring new tributaries of upaya, skillful means, 
cultural adaptations to perennial traditions, yeah. then I, I think it, it's not going to be applicable to the modern age. And it's just going to be relegated to the dusty dustbins in, in, dustbins in, in old stole, stale churches. But yeah. um, one, just a yeah. couple of things here before we, we close, because I don't want to take more advantage of your time. But we started with this notion, or I did, with this notion of hyperobjects. Um, top uh, issues, topics, phenomena that are so big mm-hmm. that it's hard to wrap one's mind around. That that you know, I always say stretching is good for growth. This has been a journey of a mental yoga. Yeah, uh, and I'm wondering if is it too ostentatious to talk about? And I so appreciate your your humility, your modesty, but there's also tremendous power that you're releasing that you are a shaman too that you are expressing and i I so appreciate i've never really related to this is is also speaking as practice dialogue is practice engaging in what we're doing here is path that's really beautiful but would you say or is it fair to say that you're also pointing towards and this connects to your book the living classroom hyperpedagogy are, are you in fact intimating a possibility for accelerated forms of learning? And I resonate with this deeply because when I explore what I call the nocturnal meditations, dream yoga and the like, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about these practices is because they are a revolution in pedagogy. It's a way to use the mind in the nocturnal arena to really accelerate learning because you're working with these foundational yeah. um, dimensions. And so is it fair to say, based on what you're experienced, that what you're also pointing to are possibilities for hyperpedagogical approaches where we can, in fact, accelerate our evolution if it's held within the right view, yeah. within the right set and setting, within the right container, yeah. that we can really ramp things up in a healthy way with, a, again, with the Bodhisattva yeah. ideal and the motivations and all the parameters of safety and security, because the faster you go, this is an, the essence of the Vajrayana. It's a jet versus yeah. a car. Jets yeah. can crash. Cars are safer, but they're slower. Yeah. Is that a fair thing to say that if, if we relate to this properly, what you're also pointing out here is not only just hyper objects, but hyper pedagogical approaches? I think so. Yeah. You know, in the living classroom, I don't mention psychedelics at all. I wanted this book to be about fields of consciousness and the effects of fields on learning and the, the, the accelerating effect of focused intentionality and energetic transmission that takes place in the classroom or in any group context. And I don't talk about psychedelics at all. But the backstory to that book is this. I was doing my private psychedelic, so-called private psychedelic practice. I was opening up into the ocean of suffering. I was going into these very, very deep collective states of consciousness and eventually into deeper you know, transcendent states of consciousness. I never talked to my students about it. But I found that my students began to be impacted by my work in very precise ways. When I was going through certain thresholds, they began to go through certain spiritual thresholds. And it began to happen when I was lecturing, nothing to do with psychedelics, just lecturing on world religions, just something. And I would be looking for some example to use to make a point. And I experienced a door open in the back of my mind the way it first happened. And this little piece of paper slipped in it. I read the piece of paper and it was an idea of something to use. 
And I, I tried it. And when I tried it, all of a sudden, the energy in the room shifted and wow. everything became more animated. And I began to work consciously with these kind of subtle suggestions that would pop into my mind from seemingly nowhere. And then <clears throat> a few years down the road, students started to come to me and they said, at the end of class, you know, it's strange that you said what you said today or gave this example, because this is exactly what happened to me this week, or this is exactly what happened to my mother. And at first I dismissed it and I thought, okay, yeah. but it kept happening and it kept happening. And the deeper my psychedelic practice went, it began to happen more, but it also began to touch deeper areas of their life. It was as if their soul was slipping messages to my soul, which was slipping it to me, <clears throat> leading me to say things that were giving them information or touching yep. very intimate places in their life that I had no way of personally knowing about. Uh, experiences that places that they needed healing or information that they needed to take the next step in their learning. And this was became such a a characteristic part of my teaching. So many people were being moved in ways that were beyond my conscious intention and even beyond my awareness when it was happening. And a, a pivot point came when I, I looked at my class one day and while I was lecturing and I looked up and I saw a half dozen, 10 people in the room with very quietly tears rolling down their face. And I realized I've got to understand what's happening. I, I really have to understand this. And that's the entire book, Living Classroom, was downloaded in 10 minutes in one session. Oh, wow. Entirely just dropped right in. And I've been wrestling with this idea, in it, but it gave me all the information I need to understand two basic points. <clears throat> but all of the, both of them hinge around the fundamental reality that Consciousness has an atomic quality, a separate quality, and it has a quantum quality. So there is individual awareness and individual awareness is true. They don't know what I know. They're here to get what I know. We give a test and I can test whether they have it, you know, that kind of stuff. But there's a quantum reality that my individual experience is grounded in a quantum in a, an expansive field of consciousness, and they are grounded in this expansive field of consciousness. And that activates potentials, which are entirely natural. It's like throwing a stone into the water, into a lake and the ripples spread out. When one person does deep clarifying work, it triggers clarification in the consciousness of people that they have karmic connection to. It's a simple, simple, natural phenomenon. So I think what I eventually wrote down and, and, and clarified was what would it be like if we taught consciously in a transpersonal pedagogy or in an integral pedagogy or in a pedagogy that recognized the, the innate interconnectivity of consciousness, which doesn't mean that we abandon the individual strategies that we know and work so well, but we incorporate using strategies of focused intentionality, of uh, 
of conscious of conscious engagement that goes beyond classical teaching so that for example you know should as a vajrayana practice it's a purification practice and i learned chud and i was doing chud for my spiritual practice i began before class even began when i would get a roster of the students for my class I would start incorporating this roster in my chud practice. I would literally pray for my students using this particular vehicle. I would pray for them and I pray for them through the entire course for their well-being. Not, I don't try to, it's not my job to think I know what's right for them or what they should be doing or anything like that. I simply pray for their well-being. I think the more we kind of activate these latent potentials in groups, the more we accelerate learning. And I found it's not only the, there's not only a collective field in the room, but there is a class field, but even deeper than that is the course field, mm. that there is a learning and empowerment that takes place mm. over years mm. so that the students, you have the individual mind situated within a class mind situated within a course mind. Mm. This is an, a, an absolute, and once you see it, once you understand it, you begin to recognize it happening in all sorts of different contexts and different places. So if there is a, a hyper object, the hyper object is simply the connective tissue of mind. It's, yeah. it's that we are always, always inherently connected. And we simply become conscious of that and become responsible yeah. to it yeah. in whatever we're doing. Yeah. And again, it's back to that narrative of making unconscious processes processes and uh, yeah. making unconscious processes conscious. Because if you can do that, then you can increase levels of communication, elicitation, e- e- evocative, um, whatever, to then then really heighten that. What is what is already again, it's already there. So yeah. why not take advantage of it? Why not engage it? Why not make it bring it into conscious awareness, pay allegiance to it, surrender to it? And therefore, enhance it, accelerate it in, in and of itself. And so, Chris, I, I want to pay homage to your time. I, 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 just a few last things, the famous last words. Wait a second. One more thing. It'll be midnight. Wait, Chris, one more hey, thing. This is fun. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, literally, I could talk to you for the entire day. But to wrap it up for now, um, people are what you're releasing here is a Pandora's box of both wisdom and potential neurosis. And by this, what I mean is, um, I wonder if you worry about what you've released here, because here's here's a little bit of where I want to close with this. Is I can I'm definitely hear or imagine listeners going, this is for me. I, I, I This is my path. I want to do this. And, and, and they may see this as a quick fix, as a lazy man's approach. And of course, your book shows this is not for the feeble-minded or the feeble-hearted. You have to, this is jihad. This is inner dharma combat. You have to really go to work here. So what would you say, like uh, dharmic surgeon's general's warning, these teachings are hazardous to your egoic health, right? Yeah. So I want to throw a little bit of a caveat to yeah. listeners who go, Oh, heck, I don't need to go into retreat. I don't need to do a three-year retreat. I can just pop these pills 
and and I'm going to attain these states. And I knew there was a quick silver bullet. This is it. So you understand it's a slightly extreme rendering of this, but people glom onto these sorts of things and they're going to run into them, run with them with wrong motivation, with wrong intent. So talk to us as we close here, several things. Um, And this also ties into my experience. I have not done this yet, but I've talked to people who've done ayahuasca retreats in Costa Rica. They go down there. They have these mind-blowing experiences over four or five um, plant medicine trips. And then they leave and, and then they they tell me, I know these people, they go, it was great, but I don't feel supported. They don't follow up with me. I'm left completely to my own devices. I am like, what do I do with that? Yeah. So as we close for today, again, lots of noodles because it, this topic is just so rich. Talk to us about yeah. like, if someone came to you, would you act as an advisor or are there advisors they can be drawn to? Do you take responsibility for this Pandora's box of wisdom that you're releasing? What are the shadow sides of doing this without proper set and setting? And so uh, I know I'm trying to close, but I can't help myself. I think this is important. We have to throw some uh, caveats out there for those who may be thinking that, oh, this is the long awaited spiritual silver bullet. I'll just pop these things and I'm good to go. Yeah, boy, no silver bullet. There right. are there are no shortcuts in this spiritual right. path. That's one I've learned. There are no shortcuts. There are intensifications of practice, but there's no getting around the fundamental laws of spiritual reality. You know that there's just no getting around them. And the early idea that psychedelics represented an easy path, uh, it just turned out to be. Um, facile and and not true. In fact, my concern is just the opposite. My concern is that if you use these substances, even conscientiously, they they can be so intense that uh, it's too demanding a path. It's it's just too demanding. You have to really, really be wise in the the handling of it. Um, I was very concerned in sharing this material because it would break my heart if someone were to read my book and then jump into some type of use of psychedelics and injure themselves, and it's easy to injure yourselves because you you open, you can open so deeply, so quickly that you really can't handle everything that comes at you. And you can, you can disrupt a healthy psyche in ways that can be permanently crippling. And it would break my heart if somebody did that. And I I did a lot of practice, a spiritual practice around that particular issue. Um, What we're learning is that breaking through, breaking the boundaries of the personal psyche, going into deeper states of consciousness is really not that difficult. It's, It's really not that hard. We're beginning to see more and more attention being given to integration. Uh, the the requirements of integration, what constitutes a healthy practice. And I offer myself as an example of someone whose practice was not entirely healthy. I would think I went too deep and it's cost me years of, of kind of, I won't say distress, but years of having to manage The joy, mm. 
that I had temporary, that I knew on a temporary basis. So, and in it, one of the reasons I left the suffering, I, you know, I didn't blunt the suffering in the book. There were people who were advising me, don't put that in because people are not going to get scared. They're not going to understand it. One of the reasons I, I put it in just because it was true. And I promised to give a, an accurate account, but I put it in partly because I wanted people to be able to understand how this stuff works, how it understands it. They are amplifiers. Amplifiers brings up our garbage. It brings up our trash. We have to confront that garbage, confront that trash. But even when we do that and do that well, we still have to manage the, the wisdom of integration. There is a book that was just published this past year in England. It's Inner Tradition Press, Psychedelics and Psychotherapy. And the focus of this book is really on integration. And I have an essay in there with other people. My essay is called The Challenge of Integrating an Extreme Psychedelic Journey. Not simply in a psychedelic session, but an extreme psychedelic journey. I think we need more essays like that. We need more discussions about what is good, what does healthy psychedelic practice look like? What are the symptoms of imbalance in psychedelic practice. What is the symptom of too much? Mm. People chasing new experiences before they've integrated the experiences that they've had. I've seen many students suffering. They've literally fried themselves and their energy feels very fried. They've gone back to the well too many times. They've plugged into the universe at too high a level and they haven't stayed grounded. They, they feel kind of crispy. Uh, they have paid a price. And some people truly have paid a price of uh, dysphoria and various types of imbalance, psychological imbalance from entering into these states. So the problem is, you see, that our culture doesn't have a wisdom in the use of psychedelics. Some indigenous cultures do. The shamanic cultures do have that wisdom. We have to learn from them how to use these practices wisely. Right now, we're using these practices within a therapeutic arena, and we, we are drawing upon our therapeutic wisdom of how to integrate these healing practices well. But as we go deeper, we have to go beyond therapeutic wisdom. We have to go into shamanic wisdom. Yeah. We have to go into the sage tradition wisdoms to really learn how to integrate these practices well. Having deep experiences, it turns out, is not that difficult, yep. Yep. and it's not necessarily very beneficial. It doesn't have a long-lasting effect. Juliana of Norwich, English mystic, had one, she was on her deathbed, she was dying, she had a near-death experience, she had an experience of the love of Christ, and she had an experience of, of the feminine God. She spent the rest of her life meditating on it, and she unpacked one experience in her book, The Revelations of Divine Love. It takes years to unpack the full potential that's unleashed in even one experience. So it would, there, we have a lot to learn. Hopefully, we will be wiser in this century with psychedelics than we were in the last century, in the 1960s, where we did a lot of psychedelics. We had a lot of experiences, a lot of breakthroughs, a lot of ca some casualties, not as many as popular press would have us believe. 
but did we change people's lives profoundly and permanently? Some yes, but not as many as we thought would we would. Yeah. I think we need to really be wise and grounded in our reappropriation of psychedelics. Do you worry about what you've released? I mean, one one thing that comes to mind here is I I spent a lot of time in the Himalayas. I've trekked above Everest Base Camp. I've seen a lot of high altitude sickness. And and so on one level, that's what this is like. It's like, I've seen this where when you're climbing to Everest, you've got to spend two days in Namche Bazaar, for instance, at 12,000 feet to acclimatize. And the people that don't, that don't acclimatize and go up, they're the ones that get high altitude cerebral or pulmonary edema and can run into very serious problems. And then the way they have to cure it, as you know, you get a headache, you stop, you go back down, you retreat to an altitude where the symptoms were not there. And then you slowly work your way up. Otherwise the high altitude sickness, your lust for the summit will kill you. So do do you sometimes worry, Chris, about again, what you release, because on, on one level, it, this ties in so beautifully, I think, to what we said, or what I said at the outset, because that's why it's beautiful, <laughs> mm-hmm. because I said it, is this is a form of Tantra. And it's interesting. Yes. I, I, I just wrote an article for Tarka, um, <clears throat> is the West ready for Tantra? And as a form of Tantra, as you know, there are practices that are prescription strength, TUMO, uh, dark retreat. There are practices that are does not designed for public consumption because yeah. they're too powerful. You're, you're, you're dealing with thermonuclear power as it's embodied in your subtle body. And so you, what you're talking about here is the danger of what's called Salung practice, inner yoga practice, where yeah. the, the condensed um, impact of your entire cosmic history is ensconced in your body and subtle body. And so yeah. when you're doing something like this, as the danger with doing inner yogas, and this is what your book screamed out to me. I said, oh my gosh, Chris is doing inner yoga here. And yeah. this is why not only is he opening his mind, he's opening his body. And as the channels, winds, chakras are opened and released, whoa, if you can't ride that wind, you're going to be blown away by that wind. And yeah. so I see this as a absolutely confluent with these prescription strength tantric practices. Yeah. If they're not done with a proper motivation, proper set and setting, really intelligently, they're not going to light you up. They're going to burn you up. And yeah. so, uh, again, lots of things being thrown out there. But I think this is really important, especially in the impatient West, where yeah. people people are going to go, shit, I'm just going to run with this. Yeah. Do you worry I, I, about you worry about what you've <clears throat> there, so to speak? Or? I worry about it. Uh, I made, first of all, that I do worry about it. Um, it's, I'm glad we're talking about it. I hope I get opportunities to talk more about it. It needs to be discussed. The relationship between this high potency psychedelic as a spiritual practice, but also as a initiatory practice and the practices that you're talking about as initiatory practices, they can burn you up. Uh, I got rather well singed and, you know, had to manage them, have had to manage them. The other side of it is the mother asked me, she said, you know, we did not give you these visions for you. We gave them Mm. for the people. Mm. She said, 
Let them see me through your eyes. Mm. Just, just let me see, let them see me through your eyes as you have seen me. And it's like, I am not important. What's important is what was shown me. And I, I hope that by sharing that cleanly and honestly, it will help people in their own spiritual development. That is my fundamental conviction, my fundamental motivation uh, as a philosopher. <clears throat> I, I trust my students to deal with the information that I make available to them, even when it jars their system, even when it upsets their cultural worldview. I work with them to make sure that they don't get pushed too hard, that they integrate them. This is something that's a little different. This is in a way... I've said something in, I'm, I've not said it in motion. It's happening all around me. I'm simply one voice, which is part of a psychedelic revolution. It's just one voice trying to bring some clarity on one certain set of issues. I should also mention that I, I made a choice a long time ago uh, not to function as a therapist, not to function as a clinician, but to function as an explorer. Mm. I do not work with other people. Uh, I do not work as a therapist. I do not take people in psychedelic sessions. I don't do that work. That's a different set of skills. It requires training that I don't have. I work with people who are training to be those people. Uh, and there are lots and lots of places where people are training to work as psychedelic elders and as psychedelic therapists. Uh, and I'm in conversations with some of these training groups. I'll be doing one this coming weekend, in fact. Uh, but I, I've made a choice to really work as an explorer and to bring a report back and to support other people who are working as clinicians who are really trying to help people use this material wisely. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said, I think right now we're learning the wisdom in the therapeutic context. We still have to learn that wisdom, incorporate that wisdom into the shamanic, the shamanic wisdom, and to integrate the wisdom that comes from the sage tradition, different levels of depth. Um, I just trust that we will find that wisdom. I hope there are not casualties or not too many casualties along the way in that process. I do worry about it. I trust. I just, in the end, I have to trust that we will find the wisdom to do this. Now, my sense is we're going there no matter what. Psychedelics are here. They're not going away. They didn't go away during the 40 years of prohibition. They're not going away now. What we need to do is accelerate and deepen our understanding of how to, what they are, how they work, and how to work with them well, what they do and don't give us. And in my book, I've really tried to emphasize the underbelly of psychedelics, that they are temporary. That's a, that my chapter on methodology is the path of temporary immersion. That's not the same as the path of contemplative immersion. You really have to work with those limitations and understand them to work with them safely. And they are powerful. And I, I really mean it. I don't recommend that people work with high doses of LSD as consistently and methodically as I did. 
I wouldn't do it that way again. I would be gentler with myself. I would open up smaller windows, gentler substances, lower doses, precisely because of the challenge of sustaining the impact, how these experiences impact you, not only in the days immediately following your session, but in the years following your session. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting, uh, Chris, uh, you, you talked earlier about, um, and this is a wonderful definition of a translation of shunyata, emptiness is translucency, transparency. And one on one level, you are the exemplar of that transparency. There's no difference between the inner and outer with you. And, and to me, it's really quite beautiful to see. And I, I also have to share a little bit of the magic that I'm feeling um, even in the conversation itself, that, that, and I hope my listeners take this in the right way, some of these questions are not coming from me. I, I can tell when I'm asking a question, but I can also tell when th- these questions aren't coming from me. And so this next one did not come from me. Um, and I hope it's okay to ask this. In relationship to the beloved, to the mother, um, do you ever feel... And, do you ever feel that you were brought into this world on behalf of the mother to act as her child luminosity, to act as that voice? I mean, do you ever um, look at your trajectory as actually being a kind of avatar of the mother itself that you were brought to, again, this, this idea of, of purpose and, and, and divine purpose and, and teleology? Does that does that speak to you around this, or do you feel this is a little bit more sort of serendipitous? Uh, I mean, I, another way you could say this in my languaging is to what degree has karma predisposed you towards this? But more specifically, using your languaging, do you think the beloved sent her child into this world? <laughs> right now, we're getting really Christian here, man. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, well, tongue and cheek aside, I think you. I hope you see where yeah. I'm coming from on this. I think that before I answer the specific, I want to answer the general. I think that many of us, first, I I believe that we all knew what we were getting into before we incarnated. We have choices to make, and we choose our incarnation. Now, we may not choose it if we're we're kindergartners. We don't let them choose their curriculum. But by the time you're in high school and college and graduate school, you're choosing your curriculum. And I think this, this is true about reincarnation, too. We choose our incarnation. We choose the form of it. We choose the timing of it. We choose the place of it. We knew at a time when we knew more than we know now of what we were getting into, we said yes to the options of this incarnation. So I think this is the lives that we are living are, are for the most part, for the vast majority, I think are chosen lives. Okay. And I think this is true for me. And I, I don't think, I certainly don't think I'm a, a, you know, an Ishtar for the, for the mother, but I have always considered myself in service of the mother. I'm in, it's in my astrological chart. It's in my constitutional chart. I, I wanted to be, you know, my first vocation in life was to be a priest. I woke up when I woke up at five or six years old, I wanted to be a priest and I was raised Catholic and that's how it expressed itself. Uh, But that fell away. But the desire to serve, the desire to know and to serve was always there as it is for many of us. And so 
I also learned along the way, uh, not in my psychedelic work, but actually in, in some hypnotic work I was doing in past life therapy work, that I have history with psychedelics. I have Native American history with psychedelics. It's what made me comfortable with this mode of spiritual practice. So I, I believe that I was born to do what I did. And that's that's not inflationary. That's just that's just very simple. This this is what I did what came naturally to hand. Uh, and it's no big deal. It's it's just what is. Uh, I love to teach. Just so happened that it took a little bit of a, a twist. And I'll add one other little small piece. There's been great benefit to me in this, in that I also learned that I have had a number of lives where I paid a price for speaking. I was tortured and killed for speaking out. And so I I was internalized. I, I brought that resistance in this lifetime. And it's not been easy from the first time I wrote on reincarnation. I had to overcome great resistance. But what I found was that by overcoming that resistance and speaking the truth as best as I could understand it, it always worked out well. It always, I was always richly rewarded for the process. So there's been soul learning for me in rising to the challenge of doing this. It's not been easy to write about psychedelics in our particular culture, but look at the, the friendships that it's given me, the context that it's given me, the opportunities to be with people has been very rewarding. And I think, I think there are a lot, lots and lots and lots of people who are like me, like yourself, who have deep, deep spiritual hunger, mm-hmm. spiritual drive, and they they do it, and as they get into it. They're not holding this just for themselves. They are truly bodhisattvas. They're doing this practice for everybody. First thing you do in a practice, awaken bodhicitta. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you do in your practice is you distribute the merit. Yeah. You know, this is this is just the nature of reality. This is just the very simple process of waking up to the true condition, which is a shared existence that we all that we all embody. Yeah. Breathtaking, breathtaking, Chris, really. Um, how can people learn more about you? Uh, again, I'm going to, I'm probably going to say one more thing and we're going to be here till midnight. Um, but how can people learn more about you? Um, what are you currently working on? How can we support you? Part of, part of what we do, mm. my aspiration is cross-pollination is bringing bringing this chorus of sanity so that we can increase connectivity enhance the connective tissue um, strengthen it and and to whatever degree possible at whatever levels of reality overt or covert support each other so how can my community learn Mm. more about you support you in your journey and and what are you currently working on that we can look forward to yeah well it's very kind of you uh, to ask that i just finished uh, teaching a seven-week course at the Shift Network, which is basically a seven-week course built around uh, LSD and the mind of the universe. And that course is now uh, is available, and people Wonderful. can get that course and download it. And there's an hour lecture followed by half an hour of Q&A, and you know, there's material there. 
And there's also readings there that they can go into. Uh, I have a website, chrisbeish.com. It's unfinished, uh, but it's there. And if you want to get access to some of my talks or some of the things I've written, uh, they're there. Uh, I don't do a bulletin. Uh, I am right now uh, still absorbing uh, the feedback from the course I did with the Shift Network. I probably will do some more teaching with them. Uh, I will probably be do, having conversations like we're having now for people who want to have the kind of conversations that flow out of critical psychedelic practice and with a spiritual twist to it. Uh, I look forward when COVID allows us to gather together in groups uh, to do retreats. Uh, I happen to live outside of Asheville, uh, where there are lots of retreat centers uh, around here. And I hope that there'll come a time when people can gather, we can gather physically for long weekend or week-long retreats where we can just enter into the discussion uh, more deeply. Uh, I don't have any immediate plans for that. Uh, I'm just, I live kind of in a responsorial mode. Uh, you wanted to have a conversation. I'm delighted to have this conversation, but I just ought to wait until things come to me uh, and we'll take it from there. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Chris, I, I just like with your book, you're, I'm left with just this um, perfume, this, this uh, sense of awe and wonder it, it really, the magic and mystery of the entire affair, the, the surrender to some, whatever you want to pen, hyper-object, I mean, that's a silly, not a silly word, but a shrink wrap word for the ineffability, the, the elegance, the beauty, the magic of this world. And, and your, your presence really embodies to me, and that's why so much I wanted to do this, not just merely audit, audit, um, with audit, auditory means, but also visual means is yeah. uh, you're doing something right. <laughs> Right, you're doing something right, and your your mere presence conveys the the kind of authenticity, if I may be so presumptuous, of what you've done and what you've elected to be as your path. And we are the beneficiaries of your the diamonds that you're throwing across this planet. And so, on behalf of my community, really thank you for taking time out of your busy life to spend um, some time with us. And I'm just left somewhat breathless. Um, mm -hmm. taking the insights that you shared is really, truly deeply inspiring. And, and I don't pepper these words out lightly. It, it's really mind-bending, mind-blowing, and what a tremendous gift your courage and your beauty has brought to this world. So deep, deep thanks, my friend. Until until next time. I'm really touched, Andrew. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for your work. Thank you for the goodness that you're spreading, for the, for the ideas that you're seeding. And uh, it's really been an honor to be in conversation with you today. Thank you. Kind words. And maybe we can do it again in this dimension or another. So all the best until next time, my friend. Sounds good. Okay. Much love. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this really amazing journey with a remarkable individual. If you enjoyed this offering, be sure to check out all the other interviews on our Edge of Mind podcast. Thank you.